Hello, folks. Welcome to the 15th episode of Kitchfork. So, a few pieces of business to get to before we begin. First of all, we will be doing an episode on Modest Mouse's Lonesome Crowded West, as discussed on our previous episode. However, it took a little time to schedule it, but it will be, in fact, our next episode. So we're going to put off, at the end of the episode, we say that we're going to potentially do deep cuts by the knife. And that is definitely something we're going to do at some point. But we are going to, in fact, do The Lonesome Crowded West by Modest Mouse after this. So it's just going to continue to be a 90s podcast for the moment. So yeah, I hope you appreciate both this and the next episode and, and living in the world of 90s rock. I also had to do some state-of-the-art audio surgery thanks to some fancy plugins I bought on Max's audio because uh, I don't know if the mic was different this time, but just watch out for that. Second thing is I made a poll on Twitter for us to begin our next season of Kitchfork, so we got some votes on albums that me and Max had sort of considered but wasn't sure what uh, what we're going to do. So the result of the first poll was Sufjan Stevens' album Michigan, uh, which we're going to do very soon. And then the result of the second poll was A Promise by Shu Shu. So those were both the winners of the first two polls, so we are going to do those albums. If you voted in those polls, thank you so much. I'll probably do more on Twitter or something else. And we will probably do some of those other albums that didn't win, but we wanted to prioritize the, the winners of these polls first as kind of a, a nice start to you know our 2003 Best New Music era of Kitchfork. One other thing that I wanted to mention with regards to this episode that we neglected to mention while talking about it was that in 1996, the same year Pearl Jam released No Code, they won their first and I think only Grammy that they've ever won for best single for Spin the Black Circle, which was on the previous album Vitalogy. And Eddie Vedder gave a famous acceptance speech, so I'm going to read it for you just to set the mood of what to expect as we go on into this episode. I'm going to say something typically me on behalf of all of us. I don't know what this means. I don't think it means anything. That's just how I feel. There's too many bands, and you've heard it all before. My dad would have liked it. My dad died before I got to know him. He would have liked it, so that's why I'm here. Thanks, I guess. No, thank you, Eddie. <laughs> Finally, our sponsor, as always, is Imitone. Check out our affiliate link on our website to get it discounted. Definitely recommend checking Imitone out. But yes... Let's go on with the show.
Hello and welcome to the Kitchfork Podcast. I am your co-host, Liz Ryerson. And I am your other co-host, Max Cohen. And Kitchfork is an anti-nostalgic discussion about the indie music of the 2000s and growing up as a child of the internet. However, doing what we usually do or what we decided to do with our fifth episode, we're going back to the 90s. (laughs) Yes. Um, The only good decade of music, really, as a 90s kid. (laughs) It's so funny, too, because, you know, like Gen X culture oftentimes is like so much self-hating and like you know our culture isn't as good as the boomers but we're a little too young to be gen xers so of course we think it's way cooler than actual gen xers do oh (laughs) Um, yeah i mean i'm sure the gen xers are have come around now to only liking the media of the time but yeah yeah you know it's it's just brainwashing you know you're a child and you're exposed to all this media before you have any taste That's true. That's true. But yes, so we were originally going to talk about, what is the name of that fucking album? God damn it. The Modest Mouse album. Oh yeah, Lonesome Crowded West. Well, yeah, I get it confused with the other one. I always think of the other one first for some reason. Lonesome Crowded West. And we are going to do that. Yes. However, uh, we needed to push it back further. So... We had an audible, and we t- we mentioned it briefly, actually, in the last episode, and I figured it would be cool to talk about Pearl Jam and specifically their 1996 album, No Code. Yeah, this is one of those fun, like, weird synchronicities that happen whenever you and I Liz start talking, where it's like, I don't think I've ever met anybody else who gives a shit about No Code. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> but No Code's, like, one of my favorite Pearl Jam albums. Yeah, it's a. I think I. I mean, Pearl Jam is such a complex and multifaceted topic in so many different ways. Indeed, and hopefully we'll you know at least touch on most of those. The most multifaceted semen pun in music. <laughs> is wait is that a is is that oh, yeah. a, like a bukkake thing? Pearl. I mean, Pearl Jam just means come. Yes. Oh, that's what okay. It is. I didn't know that. That's so <laughs> funny. Okay. Uh, originally named Mookie Blaylock after a player from, I think at the time, the the Nets, but uh, they had to change that one. <laughs> right. To something far better. I think yeah. we can all agree. Um, okay. So, yeah, I guess, uh, what's your background with Pearl Jam? I have a lot to go into, so I'm curious to know first uh, what your background with them and this album is. Yeah, God. I mean, Pearl Jam is one of those bands that was like so ubiquitous when i was growing up that i can't even remember the first time i heard them i'm sure it was on alternative radio you know my sisters had 10 and so i heard the shit out of that my i didn't personally really get into pearl jam until like my first car didn't have a cd player and so i just i would go to like half price books or whatever and buy a bunch of cassettes for like 50 cents or something Mm -hmm. and one of the tapes i got was a copy of vitalogy Ah, yes, Vitalogy. And the other album that I uh, kind of want to talk about at some point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it'll probably come up during this because I think it and No Code have a lot in common. But um, Vitalogy was like, which is like, so if all you know of Pearl Jam, as was true of me at the time, was like 10 and the singles off of Versus, then like Vitalogy really comes out of nowhere. And so that got me to be like, oh, shit, this is a band worth checking out. And so I, I think I, I basically got all their albums from Vitalogy on at that point, like soon after, right? So So when when was this like chronologically? This would have been 
I mean, this would have been around when Binaural came out, right? So this is oh, like, okay. 2000 around. Oh, uh, no. Um, no, it wouldn't have been because I was driving. It would have been... Early 2000s? Early 2000s. It was like 2003, maybe. Oh, uh, okay. So a little late to be getting into Pearl Jam. A little bit. But, but it's because, like, I never needed to buy my own albums of theirs because I would just borrow my sister's. Yeah. And it's because I had a very specific idea of what they were, you know. I didn't think I really liked grunge at the time because I didn't like Alice in Chains. And I didn't think most of, like, I didn't really get Soundgarden at the time. Mm -hmm. And I liked Nirvana, but I I mostly liked their really noisy stuff, which was more no-wave inflected. So I just, Pearl Jam always felt kind of stuffy to me because they're they're very, like, classic rocky. Yeah. And so it's not until, like, those later albums were, like, they get a lot more experimental and Vetter gets more involved as like it becomes this a band that I I find endlessly fascinating and, and you know I kept up with them until about the Avocado album you know I really loved Riot Act and then obviously the album talking about Today No Code and then Avocado's fine and then I just stopped <laughs> yeah I mean same with me with regards to the Avocado album we're talking about Pearl Jam's uh, self-titled 2006 album right um, so, you know, even though we're talking about the 90s, this is going to kind of seeg into 2000s culture, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of, like, me getting into Pearl Jam beyond, like, oh, this is interesting, was me trying to relate to my older siblings, right? Who, like, the youngest of which is, like, eight years older than me. So they are they are firmly young Gen Xers. That makes sense. Yeah, I feel like that's uh, our connection point a little bit, because I also have an older brother, not you know, my older brother is still like a millennial, but I also grew up in a college town and mm-hmm. like my older brother had a friend who had an older brother who was in college, I think at the point where I was still in elementary school and my brother was still like it was in middle school. So, you know, it was like a game of telephone. Like, I think I got some stuff from that. My brother also like we had a college radio station. My brother started listening to that at some point, you know, because I grew up in a college town. So, yeah, uh, like Tori Amos is to you, Pearl Jam is to me. It's like, <laughs> they were like my first favorite band other than the Beatles, basically. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I distinctly have this memory of us, I think, at the mall. And my my brother was talking about, like, making a deal with my dad. He's like, dealing with dad or whatever. And I was like, oh, is that the name of the album that you bought? <laughs> So I thought the, the, the band name was dealing with, I was like six years old or seven. Right. I, I don't remember exactly when this was. It was like 1993 or 94 maybe. And it was 10. And so, of course, I listened to it. And the big song, you know, was Even Flow for me. That was the song where I was like, wow, I really, you know, this is awesome. Because I had seen like hair metal and stuff, but I was like, I don't like this. I thought it was too, I don't know. I just thought it was too fake, I guess. Um, <laughs> Real hipster child. Yeah, I just, I, something about it, but something about um, Pearl Jam really hit me. And of course, you know, as a kid, I didn't really understand what any of the songs were about. Um, and I didn't like like half of the albums. Any Anytime there was a soft song, I skipped it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> like release on 10 or like uh, I don't know there were a few others I hated Why Go also which is like now I just hear the the whole album as being a contiguous thing but at the time I did not so yeah I had a similar relationship I, I, I remember really disliking Porch for some reason oh that was like one of my favorite songs it's still one of my favorite songs I love it now but it was like it was one of those things where it's like 
I don't know. It feels pretty different. And I, you know what? It's because it's right after Oceans, and I love Oceans. Yeah, Oceans was a, another track I didn't like initially, but you know now I like. Right. Actually, the last half, or after Jeremy on 10, I like more now because the first half got like way overplayed. It did. Although some of those songs still still work on me. Black still works on me. I mean, Black is a great song, but, you know, it was everywhere. It's that unplugged performance that fucking kills me every time. Yeah. One of, like, three good unplugged performances. Mm, it's true. And Pearl Jam is famous for, you know, being a live band and their performances being good. But we'll get into that later. Yeah. So, yeah, after that, I, th- I remember coming back from, like, a baseball game a Cleveland uh, now Guardians game and like we had Vitology because that was the newest album and I remember listening to it and my parents were like well what do you think and I was like it sucks because <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't you know it, it didn't sound like 10 and then no, it doesn't really have anything that sounds like 10 yeah I so I, I just didn't know what to make of it and then it became like and then I I, I started to really really like it and then my brother got no code and one of the most like I, I was frankly disturbed by the album cover of no code because of the illuminati shit <laughs> no not because of the illuminati but just like random blood and and stuff like uh, sure so the thing with the packaging of no code is that it's so the the cover is a bunch of polaroids and it actually folds out and there were even more polaroids like mm-hmm. and each copy of No Code comes with nine Polaroids that are like assigned to different songs. There's like the C, the O, the D, and the E order. And I guess from looking this up, we had the O one combination of, so it wasn't like all the songs, but there's like one picture that was assigned with with Habit, which is a guy like just blood shooting out of his nose. And I was like so disturbed by that because I was like, I'm so jealous of that. When I when I got no code used, right, because nobody had any money and CDs were expensive, so Mm -hmm. I didn't have any of that shit in it. (laughs) Oh, that sucks because the the packaging in no code and Vitalogy are fucking awesome. Vitalogy is still some of my favorite pack. I don't know. I'm a sucker for that texture. (laughs) Yeah. It, and it's from a real book, like the that they took and just like repurposed. But yeah, no code Polaroids. Actually, the cover apparently inspired by the cover of uh, Talking Heads. More songs about buildings and food. Really? Because which I was is gonna, also Polaroids. Apparently, I was gonna say. I mean, it reminds me a lot of Octung Baby's cover. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it does have an, a '90s inflection by nature of being Pearl Jam. Right. But yeah, like that's also funny to me because that was the one Talking Heads record my parents had was more songs about buildings and food. Oh, really? That album's amazing. Yeah. But yeah, I heard No Code in like, here's the difficulty for me with Pearl Jam. Like, well, first of all, like I was listening to this music, not really knowing what a lot of the songs were about. And also like during like that early era part of my childhood was like a really bad like uh there was a lot stuff going on you know and it's kind of ironic i i mean maybe i gravitated towards pearl jam because a lot of the songs were about abuse and like Mm -hmm. you know dealing with that but i didn't know that i wasn't consciously like thinking about it in those terms at all no and especially like when you're young you know it's not like Pearl Jam lyrics are super dense, but they can be kind of vague and symbolic. Yeah, I just didn't understand them at all, really. And so it's a weird irony, like, thinking about it. It also makes me kind of emotional to think about it. Yeah. 
But also, I mean, in so many ways, you know, like people talk about how when you're a kid, you notice things that adults don't notice. And I think that's true. But it's also the opposite. It's very true. Sure. When you're an adult, you notice a lot of things you didn't notice as a kid. And because of that, it is so hard for me to like put this album in any context to rank it or whatever because I hear it and I immediately think of being in fourth grade in 1996 you know no code yeah okay that's really that's interesting that's awesome yeah that is that is like your Tori Amos (laughs) yeah and I mean it was the same way with a lot of their not as much with verse because verses because I got it after it came out, but uh, mm-hmm. I got yield and binaural when they came out, uh, and then I was pretty much checked out of Pearl Jam after that. Which is funny, like watching documentaries and reading some books about Pearl Jam. Almost everyone indicates that uh, yeah, they kind of checked out of the band between like yield and binaural, <laughs> which is which is a shame because Riot Act fucking rules. That's an underrated album. Yeah, and and that's the funny thing. I'd never heard that album, or I I've heard a little bit of it, but not a lot. And I was listening to it again, and and like approaching it f- from the kind of analytic angle that we try to like approach things, because we were going to do an episode, which we might do at some point, where we were talking about U uh, two's "All That You Can't Leave Behind." It's, right. Yes. So yes. I had listened to that at some point, and so I was trying to like get into the mindset of that when I was like listening to Riot Act, and I was like, "Well, this is a hell of a lot better than that U2 album." Light years. <laughs> uh, speaking of Pearl Jam, Light Years, yeah, yeah. I mean, all that you can't leave behind isn't even good for a U2 album, but I also yeah. think Riot. I I think Riot Act is like up there with like No Code for me. Like I, th- and part of that is that that was the pearl jam album that came out when i was a teenager yeah but i don't know i don't know i think it's great i think it's a good one yeah i was listening to like the flaming lips and granddaddy and radiohead and i think i had a period of embarrassment about being a pearl jam fan because as we'll talk about i mean they got so much it's weird for because like pearl jam was like the most popular band probably in the world um yeah for most of the 90s and eventually that tapered off somewhat but because of that it also means that like indie hipster people like especially in the 2000s really love to hate on pearl jam well especially because pearl jam are very earnest yeah and their roots are very like classic rock fiddly guitar solos and shit like that yeah the guitar solos the fact that like they have uncool roots yeah, and like Eddie Vedder's vocals, like he had so many imitators and like, you know, we were oversaturated with fucking Creed and Nickelback and all that kind of stuff in the 2000s. Yeah, there's a whole genre of new, of like post-grunge and new metal that's just people doing bad Eddie Vedder impressions. It's really it's a bummer. It's a huge bummer and like people, I think a lot of people blamed Eddie Vedder for that when especially I mean, that is sort of how he sings on 10, but, like, after that, he doesn't sing as much like that anymore. So I was always, no. like, confused how why people were, like, making that comparison, but I don't know. And even on 10, there's a lot more, like, range and textural qualities to it than there is in, like, a Nickelback or a Puddle of Mud. Yeah, or even, like, Alice in Chains, to be honest. Right, Or and Stone Temple Pilots, who actually... Stone Temple Pilots are always funny to me because Scott Stapp started doing an Eddie Vedder impression and then... You mean Scott Weiland. Scott Weiland, yes. Sorry, Scott Stapp's Creed. Scott Weiland started off doing an Eddie Vedder impression and then finally did his own voice eventually. 
like on Tiny, but yeah. so it's a choice. They made a choice <laughs> to do that. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's Stone Temple Pilots is a whole interesting side conversation because they had the song Plush, which, you know, the chorus is basically just the line from Evenflow, but apparently yeah. they had written it before, but it came out after, so everyone's like, they're imitators. And they never really shook that, and, you know, just... That story ends in tragedy, as do most. As as do most grunge stories. Pearl yeah. Jam being the only exception, except for maybe Mud Honey. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of Mud Honey, we'll talk about the background. Yeah. But I wanted to go over first. I just wanted to read a little bit of the Pitchfork review. And I also, because Pitchfork did, in fact, review this album when it came out but it was in the like 12 rods gay days you know it was yeah this this is it has real snot-nosed teen energy yeah (laughs) this review so i do want to read a little bit from the new york times review that was contemporary which is written by john perales who is still i know of him because of the the new york time pop music podcast he's sometimes on it i think he used to host it right also fuck the new york times you transphobic assholes but absolutely burn in hell yeah (laughs) but we're gonna read this regardless so i'll start uh with the pitchfork review by ryan schreiber i can't deny my respect for pearl jam they rock it to the top not only are they musically amazing They're also able to exercise the political aspects that come with the territory provided by being one of the most, the world's most popular bands. It's worth noting, they're not saying rocket like a spaceship. It's R-O-C-K space I-T. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. No, no, I mean, it's just the kind of thing you wouldn't notice hearing it, but it's like, what the fuck are you saying, dude? Yeah. (laughs) That That is like what my grandfather would say. Uh, yeah the only other group with that kind of political power at this point is the smashing pumpkins oh that's so funny in retrospect it really is and the only message they're sending is that not all balding men look better with their heads shaved Uh, that's a low blow not that billy corgan deserves better but that's a low blow that's a low blow yeah come on no code comes in a neato quadruple gatefold package with 144 polaroids on the cover all taken by vetter and 13 Polaroids replicas with lyrics scrawled on their backs. It, it is, in fact, 9, not 13. I want to I wanna correct him there. Fucked up, Ron. Uh, there are 13 songs, but there are only 9 Polaroids. He's a fake fan. He's a fake fan. You can only imagine how expensive this must have been. And on top of all that cash, No Code doesn't seem to be doing very well on the charts. Yes, this album was not successful. It um, did debut and- at number one, though, didn't it? <laughs> I mean, it was not successful compared to other Pearl Jam albums. Fair. It it dropped off. But it's still like, for an album as odd as No Code to debut at number one is very funny to me. Well, that shows you how big of a band that Pearl Jam was. how big they were. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Even after Vitalogy, which had no single, really. Well, Vitalogy has like Corduroy and Better Man. Was Better Man Vitalogy? Yeah. Oh, damn. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Those are the two big ones. But that's probably due to the fact that each of Pearl Jam's albums are just mildly more disappointing than their predecessors. Oh, I so don't agree with that. Oof. It's, it's super... But it, it explains what's coming next, which is that he basically only likes the hard rocking songs. Yeah, which isn't to say that the disc doesn't have its moments. He mentions Hail, Hail, In My Tree. We'll talk about those songs later. The opening track, Sometimes, a Neil Young-inspired drama fest, is boring beyond the point of sleep. Uh, no. no. Uh, anyway, <laughs> he says, I can't remember the rest of the songs. That's 
because there's a ton of filler here. In fact, it's almost all filler. Like those weak remix EPs they put on to tide you over until the next big release. Still, No Code's a nice listen for that long drive to the cabin. But if you're looking for the overpowering, brooding, political hate anthems, why does he call it that? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> this band has formerly been known to release. Just hope you can find it on the next record. Yeah, that, I mean, obviously it sucks, but it was written by a teenager. Yeah, political I get. Hate Anthem is really, like Pearl Jam are maybe the least angsty <laughs> grunge band. I think he just thinks anything, anybody being mad about something is a hate anthem. Oh, <laughs> uh, fair enough. But uh, they gave it a 5.4, by the way. But uh, here's a little bit of the New York Times review just to show you what like a, you know, more... An adult would say. Yeah, what an adult would say. Uh, The name of the review is Pearl Jam is tired of the Pearl Jam sound. In 1996, politicians aren't the only ones running away from their past records. So are rock bands who worry about becoming too big and too predictable, a parody of their own hits. Success in rock always meant increasing pressure from both fans and corporate interests. But now, for rockers who have absorbed the underdog mentality of punk and alternative rock, it also means shame. If we're that popular, we must not be taking enough chances. On Pearl Jam's fourth album, No Code, the band tries desperately to get away from the hard rock muscle and deep-seated hooks that made them the most influential rock band of the 90s. The question is whether it can find something to replace them. In song after song, Eddie Vedder's lyrics grope... Uh, weird uh, choice of word, for a way to escape a constricting identity. He wants to, quote, transcend where we are as he sings in Who You Are, um, which we'll talk about later. On No Code, the band rummages through rock, especially late 60s rock, looking for a sequel to grunge. It's a scattered album, tentative and sometimes enervated as the music backs away from climaxes. While it's trying not to sound like a band of overbearing superstars, Pearl Jam asks for a different indulgence from its pans, that they'll play no code enough to let the song sink in slowly. About half are worth the effort. Don't agree, but I'm just reading this to tell you like where the press was at at the time with this album. It's interesting because I guess it's a pretty big shift, but so is Vitalogy. Like it's not... Yeah. A lot of the reviews just make me think people don't like slow songs yeah the album isn't even really that slow no it's just it's not as high energy as their first three albums no i i don't think and part of it is the change in the drummer which we we can talk about but right i think that's a good thing i think it's a good idea to not keep doing that because that's what yield was yield was them doing back-to-back rockers and yields like not good (laughs) i think yield is pretty good i think it's kind of mid also though i don't know but yes uh since the release of its first album 10 in 1991 pearl jam has seen its music become the mass marketed face of alternative rock largely because of its sturdy power chords and vetter's brawny baritone sound a lot like good old heavy metal it barely mattered that from the beginning vetter proclaimed self-doubt and uncertainty rather than heavy metals fantasies of invincibility i don't think he understands that that was the appeal right (laughs) around the country fm radio disc jockeys now happily growled the words pearl jam in the way they used to say led zeppelin i certainly remember that i had a station that i used to listen to out of columbus ohio called 99.7 the blitz (laughs) 
And I remember specifically them having bumpers and they're like, we have all the Pearl Jam. And they play like, you know, little snippets of each of the songs. It's like, if you want to hear Pearl Jam, come to the Blitz. (laughs) Yeah. Ours was called The Edge and had a very similar vibe. Yeah. Between Pearl Jam's albums came Imitators, Stone Temple Pilots, Seven Mary Three, and even Lesser Lights. God, Seven Mary Three. I forgot about Seven Mary Three. Yeah. That was not a good band. Uh, or fucking, or fucking, um, my favorite grunge hit that is like the most generic song that I can think of. What, what was the name of that band? It's not Lifehouse. That's a Candlebox. Candlebox, yeah. Far Behind by Candlebox. And someday we can take our time to brush the leaves of Which is, I just realized, I was like, what does this song sound like? I just realized it's a shitty version of Yellow Leadbetter. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is that is not wrong. The Pearl Jam song. But anyway, um, Better wasn't having much fun anyway. No rock star has seemed more publicly burdened by his vocation than Better. He devoted much of Pearl Jam's previous album, Vitalogy, to agonizing over his relationship with the public and the music business over how to stay honest amid conflicting demands. Yeah, so he talks more about some of the songs. I'm just going to go to the end here. Vetter isn't hiding his worries on no code, but too often he falls into American culture's Disney syndrome, idealizing childhood innocence above all. I, I don't know what he's talking about here. I don't either. I think he's talking about, I mean, he references the last song, Around the Bend. We'll get to that when we get to that. But yeah, Vetter's lyrics bemoan a maturity that means trading magic for fact, as if regression or arrested development were noble goals. They're not. They're dead ends or delusions. The band, meanwhile, knows that it has to move on. I I don't know what, what he means there. I'm sorry. This feels like there's a lot of projecting going on. Yeah, I mean, not uncommon for the New York Times. Yeah, it's very, very weird. But it's it's interesting because, so I did, you know, as we're talking about background of this band, I did read a recent book by this guy, Stephen Hyden, which actually just came out this past year called Long Road, Pearl Jam and the Soundtrack of a Generation. And my interest was piqued when I found this book existed because... He wrote a book a couple years back, a few years back about Kid A that I bought and read. And, you know, I was just stoked to see a book about Kid A. So I was like, I'm going to buy this. And this book is pretty good. It's like very easy to get through, like very conversational writing. But the perspective is very much someone from 2022 when this book came out looking back on the band, which I think is really interesting and kind of not what I expected (laughs) when I was coming into this episode. But yeah, he talks some about the band's background and all that kind of stuff. I'm trying to remember what I was going to say with regard to the New York Times review. Oh, oh, he put it in the context of a lot of other albums from 1996. So like No Code, you know, compared to a lot of other Pearl Jam albums, didn't do well commercially. Um, and he was comparing that to like REM's New Adventures in Hi-Fi or Pinkerton. There were a few others that, you know, were all albums that like tend to be more well-regarded now, but at the time like didn't do as well as expected. And I think part of that point is that like 1996 was sort of the year when things started to shift into like the late 90s mode of culture. Right. 
the quirky alternative. The quirky alternative and then boy bands and gaudy, you know, Sugar Ray <laughs> type oh, stuff. Sugar Ray. Sugar Ray, the new Pearl Jam. <laughs> they were lauded. But yeah, I, I think that's an interesting... But, you know, even if we're comparing No Code to Pinkerton or New... Like, I think it's weirder than both of those albums. For I, I could see it having some something in common with New Adventures and Hi-Fi because they're both road records, right? They're both like mm-hmm. written on tours and you, there's there's a certain vibe and DNA there. But yeah, I think No Code is, is is more adventurous. Yeah, there's also this article in The Quietest that I read a few years back that said it was grunge is kid A moment, this album, which is like... I don't know if I agree with that. I appreciate the thought and there are a few moments where I can see that, but um, I'm not sure. I, I think that's stretching it a little bit. I think it's stretching it a lot. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's different, but it's not like it's not that much of a shift, you know. They're, Pearl Jam still sounds like Pearl Jam here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, getting into the background of Pearl Jam. Yeah, the origins of Pearl Jam. Oh my gosh, there's so much to this story, and I think it's it's all context that I absolutely did not have. And even as like you know how I would think about this is. Uh, Michael Azarod, the guy who wrote Our Band Could Be Your Life. Yeah. He wrote a biography on Nirvana, like, before that, like, while they were still, you know, existing, while Kurt Cobain was still alive. Uh Uh-huh. And it seems like part of the motivation for him ending up writing Our Band Could Be Your Life about a whole bunch of other bands was that it's, like, it's actually kind of impossible to talk about Nirvana and Pearl Jam without talking about, like, the 80s punk scene in general. Mm-hmm. because in order to understand like why those things exist you have to like understand the the whole decade decade and a half previous well especially because like you know the members of pearl jam were already in like three had already done like three different really important seattle bands before pearl jam started yeah so we'll start with uh jeff ament or ament i i never know how to pronounce it who is the basis for Pearl Jam. He's from a town of Big Sandy, Montana, a very sort of rural. He grew up kind of poor, then he moved to Seattle, and he wanted to make it in a band. He was in a bunch of different bands. And eventually, he met Mark Arm and Steve Turner, who would, you know, eventually play in Mud Honey. But with Mark Arm and Steve Turner, he formed the band Green River, which I always thought was named after the CCR, CCR. song. Me too. Yeah, because those those motherfuckers love CCR. Yeah, but there was, in fact, one of the most prolific serial killers in the history of the U.S. Uh, is named the Green River Killer in that area. When I looked that up, I was like, wow, I just, uh, I feel horrible now. Because, <laughs> you know, it's like one of the serial killers who only killed, like, sex workers and, you know, runaways and stuff. Very uh, depressing, horrible story. Anyway, but that was also one of the things they named their band after. And uh, eventually, Steve Turner, who went to uh, Northwest Academy uh, for special little boys private school. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, with Stone Gossard, brought in Stone Gossard, who is their second guitarist and, you know, eventual guitarist of Pearl Jam. And yeah, Green River was a band that existed. And it was like, Green River was kind of like I talked I mentioned this previous about Mud Honey being kind of like an early 
hyped band, but Green River was the before this, like one of the big breakout like punk bands that were really sort of gaining in steam and popularity. They're de- they're definitely sort of a proto grunge, like these are going to be the next big thing kind of band. Yeah, and I I never really listened to them because I guess I just like hadn't heard that part of the story. I didn't realize like how important it was, but I listened and it's like I could tell both like how this band eventually formed Pearl Jam and how it was a punk band. It, like somehow it does combine. I think it's Mark Arm is like a, a very good punk vocalist. Yeah, Mark Arm definitely brings that. It has it sonically has a lot more in common with like Super Fuzz Big Muff than it does Pearl Jam, but it does have like those a lot of the same musical touchstones, a lot of the Hendrix worship. Yeah. And apparently Steve Turner, who, you know, was eventually a member of Mudhoney, uh, left the band because he thought it sounded too much like heavy metal. Yes, which is, it again, it feels like it's a funny thing with grunge when we lump all these bands together, but they, they're so, they have such different influences. Yeah, but this was a thing of a lot of like Seattle rock. Like, I mean, you had like the Melvins mm-hmm. and, you know, f- fucking Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, etc., but yes, uh, Green River broke up, much to the dismay of Mark Arm, because both Stone Gossard and uh, Jeff Ament wanted to go in like a more commercial direction. And that rift kind of created a whole bunch of drama in the scene because they were getting a lot of hype. And specifically like Sub Pop, Green River was releasing on Sub Pop Records. And, you know, so they eventually split into two bands. So Stone Gossard and... Jeff Ament and uh, another member from Green River ended up going over to Mother Love Bone, and then Mark Arm and Steve Turner formed Mud Honey, which was kind of the more punk side. So Mother Love Bone, I don't know. They're kind of like, they're a little bit like hair metal, a little bit like glam rock. They, they feel a lot like Guns N' Roses to me. Yeah. But with like more of a, a like a glammier Guns, Guns N' Roses. Yeah, and I think, like, it makes sense, like, within the time why they were getting a lot of buzz. They wanted Uh to sign to a major label, and that was the type of rock that was, like, specifically very popular in 1989. Yes, the the Bill and Ted rock. Yeah, and uh, their lead singer was Andy Wood, who was very glammy, very sort of, I don't know how to describe (laughs) I mean, he he has that he has like a a monster ballad voice, right? Yeah, it's kind of David Lee Roth esque. Yeah, David Lee Roth. That's that's a good place to to go with it. Although, I will say, and I I don't want to you know speculate too much on somebody who is uh, no longer with us, but I look at pictures of Andy Wood and I'm like, that's a trans woman. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Just based on details that I've heard about Andy Wood and uh, like in the documentary for Pearl Jam, they're like, Andy was really uncomfortable with himself and that's why he got really into drugs. And anyway. And just his whole his whole fashion just kind of screams. 
that vibe. And I will say, I actually like Mother Love Bone a lot, but they're interesting because I think they reveal a lot of the uncool influences to Pearl Jam. Yeah. I want to tell you that I love you, but does it really matter? I just can't stand to see you dragging down To be honest, like not knowing about Green River, I had always known about Mother Love Bone, and uh, when I listened, I was like, I don't really like this. Yeah, it's not it's not for everyone. <laughs> yeah, and I feel sad because you know the band was a big deal, and unfortunately, uh, Andy Wood had a huge heroin problem and mm-hmm. overdosed and died right before I think their album came out on Mercury Records. And so that was the second band in a row that had gotten a lot of buzz that it was over, you know, almost before it began. And so Stone Gossard was pretty determined to like keep going with Pearl Jam. So he wrote a bunch of these songs. He was like, and and they were like the side of the scene who were like very much, they wanted to be successful uh, commercially. Well, even before Pearl Jam, they did Temple of the Dog. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that in a second. Um. <laughs> But the thing that I wanted to mention is like the rift with sub pop kind of created drama because sub pop is like such a symbol of like the indie music of that era. And a lot of these bands jumped off of sub pop eventually uh, to sign to major labels. Well, sub pop was also infamously poorly run. Yeah. But Mudhoney stayed on sub pop as far as I know, right? Yes. they're. I think they're the only ones. So, yeah, that, like, I actually want to read this quote from Stone, because it it later gets into the, like, Nirvana-Pearl Jam rivalry, which is kind of at the core of, like, why people didn't like Pearl Jam who were in that scene. Stone Gosser says, When me and Jeff were at Sub Pop, we left in, in our wake a rift. That rift is what Kurt Cobain attached himself to, and it was perceived in the media as this huge line in the sand. I remember feeling blindsided by that, particularly because when I heard his record, it sounded so good and immediate, I wanted him to like our band. That stressed everyone out. And uh, Jeff Ament says, If a girl breaks up with you, you hate her. Mark Arm in particular was bitter about us leaving Green River. Then I heard what he was saying about us. That's kind of what started the whole Jeff in particular and Stone being careerist things. The fact of the matter is, in Green River, I was the only guy who had a job. These other guys, they had trust funds. They were getting financial help from their parents. I was the only one who was hungry to have my rent paid for. With Kurt Cobain, that got misconstrued. Um, but yeah. <laughs> that's that's a mood. Uh, yeah, so a very complex situation there. But yeah. So they they were looking for a vocalist, obviously, when Andy Wood died. And Eddie Vedder, who grew up in Evanston, Illinois, apparently. Yeah, which is not which is like a 12-minute a bike ride from my apartment. Yes, I've been to Evanston before. And he had a lot of family problems, moved back and forth, eventually ended up in San Diego. He had a whole story about like his stepdad. He found out his stepdad was his stepdad and not his real dad after his real dad died. And that was like a subject of, you know, the song Alive, et cetera. So like bad family stuff. He moved to San Diego. He was basically a beach bum. His big thing was surfing. 
And he sung in some bands, including this band called Bad Radio, which I listened to some of, and it's like mediocre Red Hot Chili Peppers imitation. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I've never, never found their stuff. Yeah. It's mentioned in that book uh, by Steve Hyden, Long Road. He talks about it because Better Man was written like during that period. But anyway, Eddie made friends with Jack Irons, who would eventually become the drummer for Pearl Jam, but at the time was the drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Or I think he had left the Chili Peppers and he was playing with Joe Strummer, of all people. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, And Eddie, like, made friends with him. So I guess Jack Irons somehow was connected to the band. uh, So gave Eddie this tape. You know, he sung over it, sent it back to them. And a few of the, like, early Pearl Jam songs were on it. And, you know, Pearl Jam was just kind of blown away. They're like, who is this guy? And, I mean, yeah, Eddie Vedder is a fucking amazing vocalist. Yeah. Uh, And you can tell that even in, like, if you look at the bad radio sets, like, most of the other band kind of is mediocre, but uh, Eddie is still really good. But, yeah, he was also a very shy guy, and he just kind of joined the scene that was already so much stuff going on that he wasn't privy to at all. So he was kind of like almost a hired gun early on. And then they were sort of integrated in the scene with Soundgarden. What's the main name of the guy for Soundgarden? Oh, Chris Cornell. Chris Cornell was actually roommates with Andy Wood uh, when Andy died. And so was like really distraught about that and eventually made good friends with Eddie Vedder. And that's where Temple of the Dog, the kind of super group between Pearl Jam and Soundgarden came. And that album actually came out before 10, yeah. uh, which is kind of crazy to me. Yeah, I know, right? So like his first song recorded by Pearl Jam was essentially a Temple of the Dog song. Yeah, I don't know. It's bizarre. But that's the, if you ever heard, well, I'm going hungry. No, you know, yeah. It, you know, you know Hunger Strike. Everybody knows Hunger Strike. But it's on the table, the fire's cooking. Yeah, I remember hearing that on the radio and being like, this sounds like a Pearl Jam song, but then there's another guy singing. Yeah, I always assumed it was a Pearl Jam song when I was a kid, you know? Yeah. Because, like, you know, the Soundgarden song that you would hear on the radio was like Black Hole Sun, which is not him singing in that register. Yeah. Black Hole Song is a fucking great song. Oh, yeah. Super Unknown's a good album. Like, Soundgarden are good. Hot take. Soundgarden. Pretty good band. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's weirdly like Soundgarden, I feel like has a better reputation among a lot of people than Pearl Jam, which I think is interesting to me, but... Well, because they didn't keep going. Yeah. Isn't that isn't that what it is? It's just yeah. like, the coolest thing you can do is stop existing. Right, exactly. Uh, that's so... I don't know. Anyway, 10 came out, it blew up. And the thing that I will say is like, so it blew up and... It blew up, like, so fucking big. Like, they were the biggest band in, you know, the fucking universe. Uh, when It was absurd. Out. It was completely absurd. And, yes, 
they were trying to be successful as a band, but nothing in that ecosystem had that level of acclaim or esteem behind it before. There was no precedent for what Pearl Jam and Nirvana was when they came out. Right. So it's like, yes, those the people involved in those bands were trying to be successful, but their model of success was like REM in the 80s. Right. Like, they, weren't, they weren't trying to be Motley Crue. Yeah, they weren't trying to be like literal or you too for that matter. Yeah, they weren't trying to be like the biggest band in the universe. So when because uh, that, that can be, I think that's something that is like maybe hard to relate to for people who are like, well, why would you get all this success and then say that you didn't want it when clearly you did want it? But it's like there was no precedent for that. Like no, and and also the way the music industry runs you through the ringer to be that successful. And when you're that successful is a lot like, you know, there's a lot of stories at the time of like Eddie Vedder getting mad at how these like really personal songs he wrote are like being sung by kids on the beach or like assholes on the beach or whatever, or, you know, like um, Kurt Cobain seeing people who would beat him up in high school singing in bloom. Yeah. Or the famous Eddie Vedder when he went on stage and sung Bush Leaguer, the anti-George Bush song in like 2002. Mm. And a bunch of Pearl Jam fans were like, boo, USA, USA. Which and is he's like, what the fuck? Utterly wild. Because it's not like they've always been like fairly obviously leftist. Yeah. I don't know. I think a lot of people just ignored the themes of their songs. I mean, it's the same people who got mad when Rage Against the Machine went political. <laughs> what are you listening to this band for listen i don't know i don't know what these people are all about they exist yeah but it's so funny like i remember reading an article from like 1991 92 and like it might have been in the baffler about like the new sort of grunge alternative scene and it was obviously very cynical and skeptical as you probably should be about something that is obviously a sort of a outgrowth of like the music industry but a lot of that got put on to pearl jam mm-hmm. and pearl jam was kind of like oh this is the sellout band so on the one hand they're like the biggest band in the world on the other hand like they did not have cred and nirvana did and nirvana actively like kurt cobain like actively fueled the fire by saying i don't like them he specifically didn't like jeff ament right i think it goes back to the green river you know sub pop stuff but I don't know. It feels like so many people on online forums in the 2000s would kind of repeat things that like Kurt said as like their opinions and like kind of frame that as like, oh, well, they were kind of the commercial sellouts who just wanted to be big no matter what. And, you know, it betrayed the scene or or whatever. But it's like it also like Kurt Cobain lashed out against fame, but Kurt Cobain also wanted to be successful. Yeah. You don't go into the studio with Butch Vig or sign with like whatever, what was it, DGC? Geffen. Geffen. Yeah, you don't sign without trying to be an underground hit. Yeah, well, and I mean, a lot of punk bands, I mean, The Replacements and Husker Du or Husker Du had signed to majors in the 80s earlier trying to be successful. Yeah, I mean, Sonic Youth was on Geffen. Like, like, yeah, I get it. But you're not doing that to remain underground and, and cool. Yeah. Plus, I mean, fucking, oh, man. I mean, there's so much we could talk about with fucking um, the, the Black Flag guy at record label. SST. SST. SST, yeah. Knowing, like, what we know about SST and them being horrible about, like, fucking paying royalties and everything else. As as was Sub Pop. Like, Sub Pop, Sub Pop infamously, like, used, like, copies of Love Buzz to pay, pay back artists. 
Yeah. Like, it's not a good scene. And I will say, like, Nirvana and Pearl Jam both got huge, but Pearl Jam tried to do something with it in a way Nirvana never did. Yeah, it's actually interesting. I just want to read briefly. I know we're spending a long time with the background, but I think it's important for understanding, like, some of the stuff that we you know, talk about in general with like 2000s indie and, you know, we talked about Sub Pop a lot and we're going to continue to talk about Sub Pop in Seattle. Oh yeah. So, yeah. Okay, this is from Steve Turner. He says, the media was trying to make out Pearl Jam and Nirvana as diametrically opposed to each other. Like Nirvana's the real deal and Pearl Jam's the made-for-TV kind of band. Even Cobain was saying that. The biggest thing that really stuck out in our minds was when we, uh, Mudhoney, had a horrible time on the Nirvana tour. Because it was just really unorganized and everyone was unhappy. Crew members were being fired left and right. They were trying to tell us that we couldn't have beer backstage because they were trying to make it a dry tour. So then we were like, fuck, if that's what the Nirvana tour was like, what the hell is the Pearl Jam tour going to be like? But when we did it, immediately it was such a better atmosphere. We were absolutely bummed for Nirvana, but God, they're having such a horrible time. Everything sucks, you know, and it shouldn't. Just watching Pearl Jam, the crew was really happy and really nice people, and a lot of them are still with them today since day one. It was just really pleasant, really fun. There were some skateboards. I remember skateboarding around with Jeff backstage. It really did change my perceptions on the whole thing. It just seemed like they actually worked for it, and they weren't going to pretend like they didn't want it, and they weren't going to act like big, stupid rock stars. So, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, like, Cobain, you know, like has cred because when someone dies young, they invariably get all this cred and prestige. And that's something that the music industry, you know, perpetuates. Right. But like, I think it's like more obvious to me over time how Pearl Jam was like more focused on what was actually important. And that's how they were able to sustain themselves and still exist as a band and still put on like great shows, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's in a lot of ways, Nirvana feels like a good evidence on like the toxic qualities of like cred. Yeah. And the value of, of that. I don't know. I, I, I feel like I'm talking a lot of shit about Nirvana and I love Nirvana and I love Cobain and all that. I mean, I like Nirvana a lot, too, you know, but but it is, you know, it's a lot of pot calling the kettle black, especially like I just think about how much gear Kurt, like Nirvana broke. Mm hmm. And how much money they wasted doing that shit. And like Pearl Jam actually, you know, yeah, having a crew that was treated well and, you know, fighting, like working really hard in like a very Fugazi kind of way to try and get like tickets to be affordable again. They they definitely wanted to be like Fugazi. And it's they like definitely did. very hard to do that when you're the biggest band in the world. It is, but at least they tried. <laughs> yeah. If all this influence that this part of the country has and this musical scene has, if it doesn't do anything with it, that would be the tragedy. If it doesn't do something with it, like make some kind of change or make some kind of difference, this group of people who feels this certain way, this group of people who like thinks these things that the underdogs we've all met and lived with think, if they finally get to the forefront and nothing comes of it, that, that would be the tragedy. Well, the other thing, it's funny, like, even Eddie Vedder was slightly more crazy and unhinged on stage than than anything Kurt Cobain did, like, as in, he used to fucking climb up in the scaffolding 
and like really really high and like you can see it in the even flow video yeah. um that they filmed and like drop down and everyone's like he is going to fucking die <laughs> like this is terrifying based on the interviews i've seen and read eddie vetter seems like a fucking weird dude <laughs> I mean, uh, I think the band was slightly afraid of him. <laughs> yeah, he's intense. He talks in that, like, I've talked about this before, but the way, like, some poets talk where they, like, insist on everything being a little convoluted. Yeah. And, like, imagistic. But all reports are, yeah, like, he seems like a nice guy, though. Oh, he seems nice. He just seems really fucking weird. <laughs> yeah, he's a weird guy. He was very, like, introverted, very shy, and, like, you know, was not somebody who was, like, part of the scene really i mean he followed punk bands obviously but he wasn't part of the whole seattle scene but yeah anyway uh after 10 they released verses which i think is what 10 is except better personally yeah i would agree with that and then in 1994 vitalogy came out and this is kind of like the period of vitalogy and then in no code in 1996 are kind of like the key period of the band because well, for one, Kurt Cobain had died mm-hmm. and that, you know, caused a huge sort of problems in that whole space. And mm-hmm. Pearl Jam was really focused on their battle with Ticketmaster, who is now owned by Live Nation. But I, at the time, I guess they were separate companies. And specifically, like they wanted to keep the prices of their tickets low to kind of do what Fugazi did. And I think they were trying to keep it to like $18 at the time. Right. But Ticketmaster was taking you know, a large amount of the cut to the point where they weren't making a lot of money. And so they were trying to book other venues that weren't controlled by Ticketmaster. But I think once what they realized is that any venue that was like of a particular size that could accommodate them and like the amount of fans that, you know, want to see a Pearl Jam show, you know, was all had deals with Ticketmaster. Were all the live CDs, was that a response to that? To be like, if you can't make it to the show, we can at least give you the CD? I think partially yeah but like they tried to not use Ticketmaster and do like non-traditional venues throughout like 1995 and that was kind of a disaster Mm -hmm. and it ended with like a famous show in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco when uh, Eddie Vedder had food poisoning and he had to leave and like apparently they were worried that like the crowd was gonna start a riot so uh, Neil Young came on stage to save the day (laughs) wow like an angel from heaven Yeah, and they just played uh, with him. Because at the time, in 1995, the band, mostly the band and not Eddie as much, worked with Neil Young on the album Mirrorball, which came out, was very successful. Yeah, that was after the the Neil Young grunge revival from earlier in the decade. They did do, Eddie Vedder was involved with Merkinball. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's some songs that were written for Mirrorball, but like, ended up being its own EP. Yeah. Which is, you know, what it was like, what, uh, I'm the id or whatever. That's a good song. I got id. I got id, yes. Because of id software, I always, like, mix those two things <laughs> in the video game company. Um, but, yeah, my parents actually owned Mirrorball because my parents were, like, big Neil Young fans. I never listened to it because Neil Young was, like, old fogey music for me when I was growing up. Yeah, um, same. But, you know, eventually got into Neil Young, of course. Yeah, it was. it's kind of weird that... Yeah, that was that was like Neil Young's big comeback was the early '90s and, and the grunge boom. Like, and Pearl Jam, I think we'll get into this. Like, along with Hendrix, I think Pearl Jam feel the most Neil Young inspired of any of the grunge bands. Like, just their definitely their penchant for riffage and jamming. Definitely, I mean they're they're more tight than like Neil Young's bands are always like pretty loose. 
Right. But I mean, Neil Young was like their mentor. He was so important to their ability to keep existing. You know, when when other bands were getting into drugs and doing fucking heroin, which by the way, don't do heroin, kids. Just please don't. don't. Please don't. I had a friend die from heroin. Yeah. Uh, don't don't do it. But like when other bands were, you know, flaming out or getting into drugs, he was started hanging out with Neil Young and I think being around somebody who had been in the music industry since the late 60s at that point like 30 years you know it was really helpful for the band to like continue to exist and you know he was very supportive of them so but yes uh right after that was when they started work on no code apparently like they had started recording and didn't tell jeff ament (laughs) yeah that's the book reveal anything about that because i was like what what is their relationship with jeff that they did that I don't know. I think I think it was just like they were all had kind of taken a little break after like that 1995 tour flamed out. And so like they just weren't communicating with each other as much cuz I guess the other thing we should say is the first two albums like Stone Gossard was kind of the the one in control of everything. Uh-huh. He wrote a lot of the big songs like, you know, a lot of the big sort of anthemic riffs and all that kind of stuff. But at a certain point, Eddie was like, kind of took over the band and Eddie wanted to be more like Fugazi. Yes, which I think is great. I think did good things for the band. I mean, I Eddie Vedder is my favorite member of Pearl Jam, without a doubt. Yeah, mine too. A lot of it, a lot of because like, I don't really love the classic butt rock side of Pearl Jam as much. You know, I think Pearl Jam are coolest to me when they do something interesting with the palette they have and not when they're doing like, you know, inverted chord solos or whatever. Yeah. Their big soloist guy is Mike McCready, who was actually, he tried to make it like in the 80s in like heavy metal bands in LA and, you know, kind of failed. Yeah. (laughs) And then he ended up in Pearl Jam. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, so Eddie Vedder was kind of taking over. So if you read like interviews from the groups, you know, Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament were like, oh, I wasn't very involved with that one. Right. Although Gossard was pretty involved on No Code. I mean, he he has a solo. He has a, a singing role. Well, I think he did that purposefully because he's like, oh, I'm being pushed out of the band. I got to do this. Right. He kind of like Stone Gossard, his whole thing is he kind of, he's kind of a smart ass <laughs> from what I could tell. Uh-huh. And Jeff Amen's whole thing was that he wore like weird floppy hats. That's all I can think of when I think of Jeff Amen is like wherever there's a guy with a hat on. He he looks like somebody from Hootie and the Blowfish put on a hat and joined a band. Yeah. But then like later on, he looks like a member of Granddaddy. <laughs> if you see like pictures of him from the 2000s, he just looks like he's in Granddaddy. Yeah. So that's Jeff Amet. That's Jeff Amet. But yeah, those like power struggles sort of created a, a change in their like musical direction, which started with Vitalogy of them trying to move in like a more punk direction. Even like starting with verses, you know, if you listen to 10, the production's a little more, it's a little more muddy. It's like way more reverb on everything. It feels way more of the time. Like there's that late 80s, early 90s version of rock that is very like full of like gated reverb and kind of a muddy load at low end. Yeah. I think of like Living Color had that kind of sound too. Yeah, but they got rid of that pretty much on verses and it moved even more in that direction. They worked with this guy, Brendan O'Brien a lot. 
And yeah, so in, in Vitalogy, they started to experiment a little bit more. They had some weird songs that are just like sort of toss like fucking bugs. Bugs is <laughs> bugs is infamous. <laughs> bugs is a thing. I got bugs. I got bugs in my room. Bugs in my bed. Bugs in my ears. And they continued to do that on No Code, but they like integrated it a little bit more into the songs, I think. Yeah. With No Code. No Code feels cohesive in a way Vitalogy doesn't. Vitalogy is really all over the place. Which it's like, I kind of have, I don't know what like my favorite, I, I think Versus, Vitalogy, and No Code are all great albums mm-hmm. uh, that people should hear, especially people who have only heard 10 but I'm not really sure what like my favorite among those is to be honest. Even though I picked like No Code as a favorite album of the '90s when I like posted a list or whatever on Twitter, just because I, I think it's the most interesting in some ways. Yes. But Vitalogy has some of my favorite songs on it, and I don't think No Code like hits those highs to quite the same extent. But I don't know. Like Immortality is like a, a fucking great song, or yeah, Immortality is wonderful. Corduroy or tremor christ oh i love tremor christ i always loved i love spin the black circle but i hate that event when they eventually did do the evolution i feel like that it was inspired by that song oh god do the evolution uh that's a whole other discussion which it's like todd mcfarlane ass music video oh (laughs) yeah well that's the other thing they didn't really do music videos aside from like the jeremy music video they had some like live ones which again is crazy to me of a band that was as popular as they were like not doing any like nirvana did music videos yeah no it, it's it, it kind of feels like what radiohead ended up doing when it feels like you're popular enough to be able to get away with some antisocial behavior yeah yeah and they they were at the time so but yeah and the first single on no code was the third song who you are which is a wild choice i i would have done hail hail first right yeah, well, I remember when the album came out, like, I was in church, <laughs> and I had a tape of it. So, like, I would make, because my brother owned these albums, I would make tapes of stuff. And although by that point, he wasn't, he didn't really like Pearl Jam so much anymore. So I was pretty much listening to it all the time. But I made a tape for No Code where I put my least favorite song at the beginning and my my favorite song at the end. So I ordered it from my least favorite to favorite songs. Amazing. So yeah, it started with Around the Bend. Uh, oh yeah, interesting. But yeah, I remember playing it like, I don't know why I was playing it in like church, uh, but I, I think whenever I played it, I wanted to like people to be like, oh yeah, this is cool. Like you're cool for listening to this. You're way cooler than God. Because <laughs> it seemed like my brother, like by the time that I liked something, he didn't like it, you know? So I, I think I wanted that like approval for, from other people. I actually remember, like one of his friends being like oh yeah i don't really like pearl jam except for that one song and then i was like okay so this one song is really good i played it and this kid who was like a little older he was like in his teens he's like that's pearl jam (laughs) he was like kind of disgusted slash in awe that fucking who you are was a pearl jam song oh okay yeah i mean it's yeah but uh yeah well that's the main thing i associate with that song uh, but yeah, we can get into talking about uh, the actual album now. Let's. 
I know that was a long-winded intro, but I, I well, think it gets us into it. It's an important band that we may never come back to, so... Oh, yeah. The other thing that was big is they changed drummers a lot. So on Versus and Vitalogy, the drummer is named Dave Abruzzi. I don't know how to pronounce it. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Who is like very, I think, I still think they're best drummer. Very aggressive, straight ahead, but the guy was kind of a meathead. Right. He was like, you know, not politically in tune with Eddie, especially. So he ended up getting kicked out of the band. And Jack Irons, who was, you know, the person that Eddie got the tape from, was in the band for No Code and and Yield, uh, the next album. And I think Jack Irons' style is like a little bit more loose and kind of free versus like Dave Ebruzzi being like very aggressive and uh, kind of straight ahead. So I think that kind of changes their musical approach. Like No Code is a little bit more muted, you know, dynamics wise for the most part compared to like Versus or Vitalogy. So I guess that's- It's also a bit more like rhythmically syncopated than they usually are. Yeah. Especially because after Irons is when they got Matt Cameron, who's also a fairly heavy hitter drummer. Matt Cameron, formerly of Soundgarden, also the cousin of someone who went to my high school. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Huh. Scott Cameron was his name. Wow. Small world. Yeah. But yeah. But you don't hear Jeremy Irons at first, really. No, not really, because the first song is Sometimes. I love the way this album opens up, man. I think Sometimes is a great song. Uh, I don't know. I really like Last Exit, but Sometimes might be my favorite Pearl Jam album opener. It might be mine, too. It's such a dreamy song, and it's got Vedder's doing that like kind of weird whispering in his sleep kind of vocal that I really like. Yeah, I'm imagining, like I was trying to get in this headspace when I was listening last night because these songs are so internalized for me that I didn't really like, I didn't necessarily have expectations for Pearl Jam or like what this would sound like necessarily because I was like fucking nine years old. But I'm trying to imagine someone buying this and like looking at this cover, which is just these bizarre, some slightly disturbing (laughs) Polaroid photos of a whole bunch of different things and turning it on and hearing this song. And just like, the song is like almost kind of a shit post. Like, I mean, it's the opposite of what you would expect, right? It's a very like low key, somewhat noodly, spare kind of song. Yeah, and you you have the guitar riff, the do 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 do. Yeah, you know. love the guitar tone on this album honestly like it's got this gorgeous like kind of crystalline quality to it you also have jeff immense fretless bass who a lot of people on the forums that i went to used to make fun of his fretless bass but all i can say is if you are a kate bush fan and a fretless bass hater those things are not compatible this is true i get it because fretless bass is especially after like you know jocko in the 80s has very specific vibe but i'm down i'm always down 
Yeah, because it has the boom, boom, boom. I don't know. It has a nice, a nice sound that you don't get normally with rock bass. Um, no, it's very smooth and loose, and you know, in a lot of ways, this is an album of vibes. Yeah, it really is. I describe it as being kind of whimsical. A little bit, yeah. I mean, it's lyrically and tonally for sure. It feels optimistic in a way Pearl Jam almost never does. They have some optimism. I mean, they're not they're not as nihilistic or cynical as like Nirvana. No, but it never like on a full album level, it never feels like this bright to me. That's true. It's weird because I talk about like not liking the soft songs as a kid, but I really liked this track. Yeah, it's just good. I, I love the way Eddie's voice sounds on it. I mean, we were talking about how he got over the tin voice pretty quick and this He's mostly in his upper register here, and it's very, like, wavery, almost, like, ghostly and a little creepy. It it just sounds so good. Yeah. So I will say about the lyrics for this album, I, (laughs) looking them up after this long, I was, like, not that impressed. Because I, I think the thing with Eddie Vedder as a lyricist is, like, he picks good... He has a lot of interesting, like, subjects or, like, he gets in the perspective of... Especially, like, a lot of, like, female characters with, like, daughter or, or Wygo or whatever. And he, like, takes on the perspective of a bunch of different things, which I think is cool. And one of the most interesting things about him as a lyricist. But at the same time, his lyrics are very obvious and on the surface a lot of the time. It's interesting that you say that. I feel like... On the one hand, yes. And on the other hand, Eddie Vedder has a penchant for picking an image out of nowhere. Yeah. And the, like, he'll say something really obvious and normal and then follow it with something like it's egg rolling thick and heavy. Like, <laughs> you what know? the like, fuck does that mean? Like, what are you talking about, dude? And I think sometimes it works. I think there's some, you know, there's some stuff on like, it's one of the reasons why Jeremy works for me mm. is because it's kind of like absurd and imagistic. But on a more lightweight song, it can feel like hippy-dippy nonsense. Yeah, the lyrics are large fingers pushing paint. You're God and you've got big hands. Colors blend. The challenges you give man. And then seek my part, devote myself. My small self, like a book amongst the many on a shelf. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's not like grunge is full of great lyricists or anything. You know, most Nirvana songs are about body fluids and like most, you know, Soundgarden songs aren't about anything. So there's there's a lot to be said that this is still better than like the worst excesses of 90s alt rock lyricism to me. It's not Anthony Kiedis. Yeah. But it does feel like the, the fact that he's a surfer bro makes so much sense to me because this feels like this almost has like it's not Jack Thompson. What was the name of that one guy that got famous for being like a beach bum and like the odds? Uh, Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson. Yeah. It's got Jack Johnson vibes a little bit. Uh, 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 yeah, I sort of could see that. I'm, I'm sort of cringing at the comparison. As you should. But like, you know, it's that wistful, like, have, have you ever thought about this on weed <laughs> kind of thing? It's kind of like the uncool version of Last Exit, where Last Exit, he's kind of like singing about like needing to transcend and let his spirit pass on to the next thing in this very like aggressive and now he's singing um seek my part devote myself or you know sometimes i reach to myself and hear god but yeah i think it's like i i've always saw it as like it being slightly whimsical like it's sort of poking fun at himself 
a little bit. I mean, the tone of the song is very, is a little jokey, right? Like that guitar line feels almost mischievous. <laughs> yeah, which I like. And you don't really, I kind of wish they had more songs like this, to be honest. Oh, me too. And I, a lot of my favorite parts on like No Code or Riot Act uh, are when they do this kind of weird, gentle psychedelia. Mm-hmm. It's great. I love that. But yes. Our next song is Hail Hail. Which should have been the first single. Like, this feels like... Yeah. This is how you get asses in seats for a Pearl Jam. The most conventional rock song on this album, but it's not really a conventional rock song at the same time. Like, like it. I mean, if you compare, like, you know, this sort of anthemic quality, arena rock quality to some of, like, the early, like, Stone Gossard composition where the melody is, like, very pronounced... The melody in this is very weird. It's very like windy and it's just following like the guitar rift, which is, you know, it feels kind of relentless. Like yeah. the chorus isn't separated from the song. It's just the same riff getting louder. Yeah. You know, it's a very like pummeling kind of song, which is, it's kind of great. I love that sometimes sets you up for this. Yeah, I think it's it shows that like with the like straight ahead rock songs, there's at least a few on this album that are definitely more like punk influenced or inflected. Yeah, I mean this feels like a, a straight up progression from like Spend the Black Circle. Yeah. Right. That same kind of just like very relentless yelling, <laughs> unstoppable force thing. I like it more than Spin the Black Circle. Uh, yeah, it's way better than Spin the Black Circle, but I, it's of a piece, I think. I, or it's, it's the same thread. It has more in common with that song than, say, Once, you know? Yeah, yeah. I get the words and then I get Actually, okay, so here's the funny thing about this song. Again, as a kid, I had absolutely no idea what the song meant, but it was the most conventional Pearl Jam song on here. And so, you know, this was 1996. We had, like, talent shows where kids would, like, lip-sync songs. And one of the, like, big ones was, of course, Wonderwall, because that came out, like, some kid lip-synced Wonderwall, because that came out in 1995 or 96. And I was, like, so wanting to do this song even though i had no idea what it was about i was like oh yeah i was just imagining myself like lip syncing fucking hail hail and you know saying it's egg rolling thick and heavy (laughs) which is like you know as a kid i'm like i don't know what that means it's probably smart right it's gotta be (laughs) yeah as an adult i must like have to figure out like what that means but it's like no it still doesn't make sense no he's just saying stuff I mean, it's about, like, a relationship sort of falling apart, basically. I mean, that's what I gather from it. It has the iconic line, are you woman enough to be my man? Yes, which is delightful. But it also has, like, one of his clumsiest lines, which is, like, the hail, hail the lucky ones, I refer to those in love. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, see, I always thought he was talking about bursting blood. Yeah, it feels like it should be that. It's so clumsy. It actually, there's a thing in in Who You Are that is that way too, but is kind of funny. But in this song, I was like, when I looked, I was like, is he really saying I refer to those in love? That's so clumsy. It's so weird because he hits it so hard. Like he is, he is like on it for this song. Like he's going really hard with it. And the fact that the lyrics don't have that much 
actual punch when you read them is is weird. I mean, but it's kind of Pearl Jam in a nutshell, though, because Vetter very rarely writes like lyrics that fit the tone of the song. Yeah. So the lyrics, uh, is there room for both of us, both of us apart? Are we bound out of obligation? Is that all we got? Um, I get to words and then I get to thinking, I don't want to think, I want to feel. That's like the Eddie Vedder mantra. (laughs) Yeah, just vibes, baby. All vibes. Just vibes. I like the line, I find it on the run in a race that can't be won. I just like the the way he says, in a race that can't be won. Race can't be won. Yeah, he goes really hard on it. Yeah, I just love the way the song, like you said, it's a very windy. It feels like a riff with no beginning or end. It just keeps hurtling at you. And then it has kind of a jangly like bridge section, yes. which comes back at the end. Yeah. Some of the progressions on these songs or some of the ways like the songs like change tone kind of on a dime. I really, really love. And yeah, I think Hail Hail is like definitely one of the best songs on the album. It's it's the kind of art rock that I wish was more present on Yield. Like if they were going to go hard on Yield. Yeah. <laughs> I wish it was more like this. Yeah, I think part of it is Eddie Vedder taking like a more... Look like on Yield, I think he was less involved with like the construction of the songs. Right. So that's part of it. It also, I don't know, something about Hail Hail like coming in right after sometimes it's like it just hits you it's like so good. really hard from the beginning. It's like It's maybe my favorite like one two punch openers ever because it's such a the contrast is so striking. Yeah, and you can see why they were one of the most popular bands and why they're still so well regarded as a live band because some of these like hard rocking songs they do a real fucking good job. Yeah, they rock it to the top. Yes. Thank you, Ryan Schreiber. <laughs> Thank you for for really telling it like it is. But yeah, that's Hail Hail. Ends with that guitar riff that is a little more jangly. Yeah. And then we have Who You Are. God. I like Who You Are. It is a Uh, very weird choice for the single. I wrote a little bit whack. Is it because it's got that like (laughs) Eastern mysticism vibe? (laughs) A little bit. Yeah. It's just the like the... I I don't know. It feels like... Yeah, it, there's a bit of a Raga influence and it, it comes off in the way that a lot of like white bands are like, this is my spiritual album, so I'm going to use some traditional Indian scales. Yeah. Come to send, not condescend, transcendent to consequence, to transcend where we are, who are we, who we are. I mean, I guess those are kind of interesting terms of phrase, but they are exactly... Uh, on the nose for like that kind of spiritualist you know it's on the nose for any song that features an electric sitar although i do like uh can't defend fucked up man when he says that that's a good line yeah again i don't deal with lyrics that much i think as a song like it's such a weird choice for a single because on the album it feels like connective tissue Mm -hmm. like it feels like a transition from hail hail to in my tree which are two much stronger songs in my opinion Oh, yeah, definitely. So the idea that it would be their single, the first single, it's so weird. (laughs) Hi, this is Liz. I just had to pause for a second because I forgot to mention, for whatever reason, the lyric that has haunted me 
for most of my life now, and that is trampled moss on your souls, changes all, you're a part, seen it all, not at all, can't defend, fucked up men, etc. But then next he says, driving winds happenstance off the track in the mud, that's the moss in the aforementioned verse. Now, for years, I thought that I must have imagined this line. There's no way he said that. Who says that in a song? They just say, oh, yes, that's the thing that I referred to in the aforementioned verse in the song. The way he sings it is very funny. Too. I think there are multiple people singing it. But I thought I must have imagined it for years because there's just something so odd about doing that, like referencing yourself in that way. But no, that is in fact what he says. And so like just for years, like like I would, you know, make up lyrics to songs and then throw in the, oh, that's the thing in the aforementioned verse in it because like there's just something about, <laughs> I just never heard anything like that before in a song. So I think it's a little weird and clumsy, but it gets more points for me for sticking out in my head and, and haunting me and being memorable than, you know, like I refer to those in love or some of the other lyrics on this album. So I had to mention that. I have no idea why I forgot to mention it in the episode, but I had to mention that. I like the drums on this track. Like, Oh, the drums are fantastic. They have like a cowbell or something like that that he's hitting. And it has more of a like a loose, I don't want to use the word tribal because someone used that. but No, but it is polyrhythmic. Yeah. And I think it shows that, and this is something that, you know, was said in by members of the band in comments about this album, that they were a little bit more loose and jammy. Like most of these songs were not written before they started working on the album and you you can sort of tell like in comparison to something like 10 oh i didn't know this but this explains a lot vetter before that had been collaborating with new strat fatale Khan. oh so we could definitely see where this like can emerge from that and this is a vetter song yeah of course vetter has a majority of the songs on this album i think mm-hmm. oh also i should have mentioned that he actually toured with Mike Watt in 1995 and Dave Grohl in some band. Doing what? <laughs> uh, I don't know what the name of their band was, but he said that like Minutemen fans in Chicago like threw stuff at him. What were they expecting? Deep Boone is dead. <laughs> because <laughs> they're like oh this is the commercial rock guy and he's like i can understand i would have done that to myself too what uh i mean you hear a song is a great song played a million times you never want to hear it again if i hear that song one more time if i see that guy's face one more time i'm gonna fucking find out his address and kill that motherfucker i don't blame him i've said it myself drake Burrell was there food fighters already existed at that point yeah Oh, I man. guess it's harder to hit the drummer. Yeah. 
But oh, and yeah, he had like there was a point in that tour where he was like traveling around in a van, like doing broadcasts while the rest of the, the band was like flying. Oh yeah, everywhere. And apparently, they asked him like, "Are you embarrassed to be in in our band?" I a fair question. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I think Eddie Vedder's struggles with all that stuff are directly things that you could feel in songs like this. Yeah. Because there's that, you know, that Tarkovsky movie, Solaris, Mm -hmm. where there's like eight minutes of just them driving on a highway. And it's just like in a car, like following a car driving on a highway for like eight minutes, not cutting very much. And somebody asked Tarkovsky, he's like, why did you put that in the movie? He said... To weed the idiots out of the theater. (laughs) (laughs) And I sort of wonder if Eddie Vedder was like, okay, we're putting out Who You Are as the single because it's like, hey, we don't want some of you. (laughs) Like, (laughs) go to New Metal, go to, you know, go to fucking Korn or Creed or or whatever. Like, don't keep with us. So (laughs) that's kind of what I think maybe he was intending with this song and also making it their single. Maybe. I mean, it definitely feels like sort of anti the audience, which is fine. But even if they were going to do that, I think there are other songs that do this kind of thing better on the album. <laughs> yeah. The one part uh, I do like in the song where it like, goes, bah, 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 and then the drums kind of like crescendo, and it's like the band is like going real nice. Like, it, the band still sounds really good on this song. Oh, yeah. They sound fantastic. Like, all through the album, they sound fantastic. Yeah. I mean, they're a very polished band musically, and they're never not going to sound pretty good at the very least. Like, they can play their instruments. Yeah. Which is uncool. Yeah. And I do appreciate some of the just the randomness of this. Like, I think it begins, and there's, like, a a random keyboard just being played. It's, like, someone just hitting notes. There's some other, like, touches with that. Or, like, you can hear sitar, but it's not, like, that pronounced. I, I, it's kind of pronounced you know like you can tell okay fair enough but yeah there's some musical elements that i wish that they had dabbled in a little bit more with their like productions like this is as far as they would ever go with that kind of stuff you know yeah like in being described as grunge as kid a uh i kind of wish that it actually was that (laughs) in some ways yeah i i do too but like if you don't come in with that expectation i think there's also like all the songs that aren't super experimental are still like really good Pearl Jam songs. Absolutely. Speaking of a really good Pearl Jam song, we have In My Tree. In My Tree is maybe my favorite on the album. I fucking love this song. It's one of my favorite Pearl Jam songs. Like, it's up there with, like, Immortality and a few others. It's just so good. It's the same thing of being very, like, it's not quite as relentless as Hail Hill, but it's still very insistent upon itself. Like, it's got those rolling toms and this very, like... The drums are so good in this. so good. And this, like, gorgeous guitar that just keeps, like, pushing forward against the beat. This actually has a loud, quiet, loud thing, which they didn't really do. At the beginning, like, the vocals are almost kind of whispered. Yeah. Yep. Which is so good. It's so good. No more crowbars to my head, yeah. I'm trading stories with the 
it sounds a little bit like U2 also. <laughs> I, I mean, it's got like chorus and stuff on it, so I could kind of see that. I mean, I like you too, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna. It's a little more anthemic, like the way that Eddie Vedder sings, especially like right when it comes in at the beginning, where, he's, where he says, "I wave to all my friends, yeah, they don't seem to notice me, no, all their eyes trained on the street, yeah, etc." That part, but this song goes a lot of interesting places, like the chorus where he says, "Up here so high, I start to shake," and there's like a sort of like a choir going, "Oh." <laughs> yeah, it's like a a weird texture that you don't really normally hear in like a Pearl Jam. There's some like or the the there's kind of like a I don't know. I guess it's kind of he's trying to do like Middle Eastern music there a little bit, but not as obviously as um as the previous song, right? It feels yeah. It's it doesn't feel as like appropriative. I guess. No, it feels like incorporating an influence rather than trying to. To sound like New Strafatea, like Han. I don't know if I love the lyrics, but I think the contrast between how almost like childish the lyrics are and how earnestly it's performed is really, it, it kind of reminds me of like Flaming Lips era soft bulletin. Oh, okay. Yeah. Where you're, I, this is all stuff a kid could say that the, the thing is, it's pretty on the nose and simple. And it's just like, yeah, up in my tree, nobody bothers me and I can wave to my friends, but it's performed with such enthusiasm almost that like, I believe it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's one of the things that like the total package is is so important and it's why it's kind of so hard for me to analyze that from that angle because, you know, if you think about this song or a lot of other songs in this album in the context of, you know, looking at the album cover and thinking about like what the band's intentions are, it goes beyond the lyrics, it goes beyond some aspects of them being a rock band and it's like kind of, there's something you know the things in between the notes and whatever and it's like those are things that are hard to describe but they definitely they're getting there in a way that is like very kind of strange for the biggest band in the world or even just a grunge band to be doing a song like this oh yeah i mean at this point the band is fully like not grunge anymore yeah you know in the same way that soundgarden weren't really anymore by the time super unknown hit and I like that better. And, you know, when they have room to mess with dynamics and rhythmic conceits, like they're producing some of the most interesting work of their career. And I think their like technical skills and their melodic senses are so honed that adding that layer of experimentation makes it pop in a way that like, yeah, something like 10 doesn't. Yeah. They know like... <laughs> They know what they're doing more musically. Like they know what direction they want to go with something and like how to sort of construct an arrangement based off of that. Like Well, and all, all these like of all these first four songs already are so like texturally different. Mhm. While still feeling kind of of a piece because of like, you know, the guitar tone and the general sunny disposition, I guess. <laughs> um, but it's a lot more diverse than any album besides maybe Vitalogy. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, this is the thing that always made me mad about how people characterize Pearl Jam because 
it all seemed to be so much based off of what 10 is and was. And it, right. it seemed like I never heard, even though these albums sold a lot, I never heard people talk nearly as much about, you know, Vitalogy or No Code or like the direction that the band actually ended up going in and the majority of their albums are. Yeah. And even like reading some interviews with them where they talk about 10, they're like, yeah, Nevermind is a better album than 10, which it is. Yes. But they also made a lot of better albums than 10 too after that. So Absolutely. I mean, there, there's definitely a couple of Pearl Jam albums I would put ahead of Nevermind in a second. Yeah. So, and I think they're just a, like musically a more kind of intelligent, complex, multifaceted band. And part of it is because they actually had time to develop and they didn't flame out, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, and, it, and because like they're trying things, they're trying things and they're going for a specific purpose in a way that like, you know, it, it felt a lot with like grunge bands of the era, like a very monotonous genre that like, people were very locked into. Absolutely. Outside of the big three bands, you know, I, I challenge anybody to tell me the difference between a, a seven Mary three and a better than Ezra and a candle box <laughs> or whatever. Even a lot of St Stone Temple Pilots song, they have some good songs and maybe are a little bit unfairly um, considered. But their best stuff is from like tiny music on when they stop sounding like. Yeah, but like fucking plush or I, I don't know. Ugh, I don't know. I don't like it. It's not good. It's bad. In fact. <laughs> Well, speaking of Pearl Jam trying things, uh, different things, we have Smile, which is a Neil Young song. <laughs> yeah. And weirdly, frankly, it's my, I think it's my least favorite on the album. Oh, I like Smile. I don't know. I mean, like, I get the Neil Young influence on Pearl Jam, but it's not really one of my favorite Neil Young songs either. <laughs> yeah. Well, so this isn't literally a Neil Young song, but they played as Neil Young's backing band and he literally plays the harmonica and it sounds like a Neil Young song other than the chorus is more of a Pearl Jam chorus where he says I miss you already you know the chorus is gorgeous I'll give you that yeah which I think is why I like this song because it's like here's our Neil Young phase and then here's like the Pearl Jammy aspects of this song he like they push it forward into something a little bit more them you know yeah but I, I just wish that part was <laughs> I just wish it was mostly that part I think it would also bother me is and this is very nitpicky, but it's like it's wild thing in a minor key, like the chord progression of it. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. And I don't like it. I don't like the way that doesn't sound good to me. <laughs> I don't know. I like it because there's this element which it is, you know, in a lot of Neil Young songs, I thinking of like something like on the beach or something. Where there's these kind of slow bummer songs where the tone is kind of sarcastic. Or it's like burned out and, you know, just the way he sings, don't it make you smile when the sun don't shine, don't it make you smile. Like, it's not complex lyrics, but just, again, very musically intelligent, like the tone of the song feels like it conveys a certain feeling like really well to me. 
which then contrasts really well with the I miss you already. I like the part at the end where he says three crooked hearts swirls around just the way he sings it. I mean, Eddie Vedder is such a fucking good vocalist, but that is the thing that like, whenever I think about the song, like I think about the sort of fade out part where he sings that. Cause there's just something in that, like in his performance that so much carries what this band is. And it's why, like, I just can't imagine the mother love bone version of this band existing outside of like the late eighties and early nineties, you know, mm-hmm. because Eddie Vedder, even when he wasn't writing the songs, what he was doing was like kind of contextualizing them and interpreting them and and giving you a, you know, all these, like, it's something that I can relate to when like someone asked me to do music for like a game or something like that. It's like part of doing that is like trying to understand like, what is the actual like meaning behind this? You know, what is the thing behind this that I can heighten or draw out that is like in this music that the people who are making it maybe don't necessarily realize. And, and Eddie Vedder is like so good at doing that. That's absolutely, that's a really good observation. Yes, I would agree. Cause he, he takes these things that are strong riffs and you know, whatever. And each song has its own identity and that reflects, even when the lyrics are kind of overly simple or whatever, that like reflects the theme in a, in a really interesting way that kind of adds an extra element that of course- Well, and, and something I realized thinking about, like I was listening to a lot of Pearl Jam this week is like, Eddie Vedder has such a unique melodic sense. Like the vocal lines he writes are usually not the obvious vocals for the kind of song being written. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of like focusing on tritones and sevens and like weird kind of not disharmonious, but but not the normal, like easy to sing notes you would do in these kinds of songs. Yeah. Famously, even flow being a tritone, one of the most famous yeah. tritones in music, his vocal line. And it's fucking sick. Yeah. Um, and I think that brings out like the artier side of songs that could if they tilted too much in one direction would just be butt rock. Mm hmm. But and what I love about No Code is I think a lot of these songs give him a lot of room to do that, to write these sort of languid, interesting vocal lines in a way that some of their harder stuff doesn't. Yeah. I like some of the soloing in Smile. It's a little more, it's not as like Pearl Jam wanky The when the good car goes. I don't know. I can't like imitate the sound. I, I appreciate you trying. <laughs> It's like a tone that is like, I don't know, it feels something more like maybe what Neil Young would do and and not Mike McCready. (laughs) It does feel Youngy. But then next we have Off He Goes. So here's the track that is like, this is the kind of track that I would skip as a kid. I, I just refuse to listen to like the soft Pearl Jam tracks. And then as an adult, I came back and it's like, everyone seems to like the soft Pearl Jam tracks. Like they seem to be some of their most popular songs. Like I always skip Nothing Man. Like I never listened to that song when I was really? a kid. I think that's so good. <laughs> but somebody actually on a music forum, you know, a lot of people were shitting on Pearl Jam saying how much they hate Jeff Ament. But I noticed increasing number of people who are like, no, like actually No Code is a good album. And especially Off He Goes, like they pointed to this song as being like one of their best songs. So like I actually got more into this song, you know, when I was like 19 or 20 because I never listened to it when I was younger. It seems to be the most streamed song from the album, which I don't understand, but I I like it too. I mean, it's good acoustic riff. Again, it's an acoustic riff that kind of reminds me of like Automatic for the People era R.E.M., Oh, it makes me think of the Beatles song, And I Love Her. (laughs) It's kind of the same riff. I don't have enough Beatles catalog. That's the problem. That's my problem. 
the Beatles, the And I Lover is ba da da da, and this was ba da 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 da. It's kind of similar. Okay, I'll buy that. <laughs> actually, when we were talking about this sort of innocence with In My Tree, it actually made me think of like you know Strawberry Fields Forever, or like yeah. Lennon, like that era of his like trying to you know, or Across the Universe, or something like that. Which, as a kid, I was listening to all that music, so maybe that's you know, a connection that I didn't realize, but I liked because it's something I recognized. But yeah, this is a song about, (laughs) Eddie Vedder said he wrote it about how he's a bad friend. (laughs) (laughs) He wrote it about himself. Amazing. When he says, uh, look at him in his perfectly unkempt clothes, he's talking about, you know, like corduroy was similar. He's like kind of talking about the grunge aesthetic. I love it. You love to see it. But yeah, it's about, it's like, oh, I was good friends with this guy and then he disappeared and then he came back and he was great and he was supportive and then he disappeared again, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I get that vibe. I do. Yeah. I mean, that is a lot of my friendships or had things like that where I just like am somewhere and then I move and then I don't keep in touch with people and yeah, I'm pretty bad about that. Yeah, it's, it's I get it. I get it. I, I, you know what? I identify with you, Eddie Vedder. <laughs> You're speaking for all of us. Yeah. Sit and see me on the flip side On the strip he's taking for a ride He's been taking too much on There he goes with his perfectly unkept The thing that I was going to say about Off He Goes also is it's kind of like country inflected too, like the guitars especially. Oh, for sure. The other thing it reminds me of, which is a, a reference nobody will understand except for me, but it, it reminds me a lot of uh, this uh, Miracle Legion album called Me and Mr. Ray, which has a very similar acoustic riff vibe to it. <laughs> Like melancholy acoustic riff. I think as a kid, I didn't like these softer songs because they felt like very sentimental mm-hmm. to a degree that like it's like I'm not signing up for this when I listen to Pearl Jam. I also just kind of got more bored easily with like slower and more downbeat songs. Mm-hmm. And there's a pretty extreme like change in dynamics with something like this song or Nothing Man to a, what a lot of you know the rest of those albums so but this was the first one that i really started to appreciate more because of people on those forums and you know i think the riff the main riff is is a big reason why this is one of their best like acoustic songs in this vein it is a really good riff yeah it's high quality yeah it kind of adds like an ominous element to the sweet parts of the song it's a good melodic tension that works really well Mm -hmm. i also was gonna say the lyrics reminded me of the song uh not a friend by sebado yeah well again it's about a bad friend yeah but that's the end of side one if you had a lp or which i did not they were pretty big about pushing vinyl like especially with vitology in this one yeah vitology was on vinyl first right yeah completely wild i still need to get i would love to 
own both of those albums on vinyl. Oh, me too. But yes, Habit. So this is basically a punk song. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, it's like there's maybe like three, a handful of rockers on here, and this is one of them for sure. Yeah, I like this song a lot because, well, I think the Stephen Hyden book was talking about this, how like Eddie Vedder never really got to be in punk bands, but Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard were in punk bands. So like, he's like, I want to do the punk song. And they're like, uh, we already did this shit, you know? <laughs> So, like, both Habit and Lucan are basically punk songs, and they're both written by Eddie Vedder, and I think they were both written before this album, you know, before they started recording. So, yeah, he just, he needed to get it out, you know? And I'm fine with that, because I, I, I love Habit, you know? What I love about Habit is there's so many, like, weird little sections of this song. Uh-huh. Like, it starts off with the the main riff and see the habit happen to a couple of friends, see it happen and the message it sends, taking off for what's an obvious fall just to see what all the fuss is about. And then the chorus, it's not your way, not your way, not your way, kind of a punk chorus. But then uh, it gets to the the never thought you'd have it section, but then it kind of breaks down and he's just kind of, the song kind of slows down. And the way that they like stretch this song out is like really interesting for something that's basically just a punk song. And it goes back again to like how kind of like musically intelligent and developed they were as a band. Yeah. And I think maybe, maybe something about their songwriting process, which from what I gather is very jam oriented, Mm -hmm. you know, like a lot of them start as like, sketches that a member will bring in or and then they'll jam on it which is how you get these kind of looser song structures i think which is a again a very cool vibe i love his vocals in this too like he's really going for it oh yeah the double track like low and high screaming uh it's so good So they did actually perform, like in the 2010s, you know, there's this whole trend of bands performing full albums live. Mm -hmm. Pearl Jam did their own version of it, which is just completely unannounced in random concerts. They're like, okay, we're going to play all of 10. Okay, we're going to play all of No Code. And they only did it once. That's insane. Yeah, you can find video of the No Code show. I think it's from 2014. And generally, it sounds pretty much like the album. But Habit, you can definitely tell he's struggling to hit the <laughs> hit the notes in the chorus part. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I actually haven't had a chance to see that whole live video. It's just shocking to me that they did it <laughs> of all their albums. Yeah, it's remarkably consistent live with, you know, it still sounds real good. I mean, I don't know what it's like in 2022, but I imagine it's not that different from the shows that I've seen from like five, six, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Habit is a great song. Habit's great. I like Luke and Tune, maybe not quite as much. Yeah. But, uh, oh, actually, and we shouldn't skip Red Mosquito, which is what I did in my head. But yeah, Habit, obviously, about increasing number of huge problems with heroin addiction in general, like in the 90s. And obviously, a lot of musicians got really into heroin. There is an element of the lyrics where he's like, where he says, I'm so happy with my righteous self, where he's like, kind of like, 
making fun of himself for being sanctimonious because i imagine that might have been how his friends reacted to him about like hey you shouldn't do heroin but also you shouldn't do heroin so you shouldn't do heroin that's <laughs> just a i mean there are other drugs where it's like okay maybe but but heroin no just just no just don't mess with it it's dangerous and it's extremely hard to quit yeah okay but the next song is red mosquito uh, this was like my favorite song as a kid. Really? And I think part of it is this was the song where like my brother's friend was like, oh, that song is cool. And so I'm like, oh, yeah, this is the cool song. Because it's got the sickest solos. Well, I think part of it is I really actually like the lyrics to this song. Oh, really? Th- this is the one about his like stomach flu, right? Oh, OK. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> It's just so, like, abstract. Like, you know, as a kid, like, when you're talking about, like, weird animals and vampires and shit, you know, and devils and stuff, it's, like, very... Those are all things that I understand what they are, you know? Mm -hmm. Because they had the song Satan's Bed, and, you know, he's talking about not wanting to suck Satan's dick. Um, (laughs) Your loss. (laughs) Any better. Yeah. Which I think was a Bill Hicks reference. I still think that's a Bill Hicks reference. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I I would be shocked if Eddie Vedder was not a Bill Hicks fan. They're both sanctimonious. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well, and I was a huge fan of Bill Hicks as a high schooler, so. And I was very sanctimonious, so. Yep. (laughs) But uh, where he says, I was bitten must have been the devil. He was just paying me a little visit. I was like so scared. I was scared of the devil because I grew up Christian, obviously. And, And I was like, oh, this song is like, there's like a lot going on here. I was like scared, but in a, you know, like, ooh, I want to listen to this way. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. The lyrics about red man's your neighbor, call it behavior. While you're climbing up slippery hills, two steps ahead of him, punctures in your neck, hovering just above your bed. I like assume that's like a vampire or like the exorcist or something like some kind of reference to that. Uh, yeah. So the story I read was that it was, it was when he got food poisoning in San Francisco and he just felt like he was hallucinating in the hotel room. Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> I was not allowed to leave the room. But yeah, as a kid, like the lyrics, like what I could understand of them really was like fascinating to me. It's evocative. It's like a tool song almost. Yeah. The guitar riffs sound kind of mosquito-esque. <laughs> yeah, they, they have, they're heavy on vibrato like that. That like wild, wide vibrato. They have like a buzzy sound. My only issue with the song is I'm just I don't have a lot of patience for the solos on it. The solos are pretty wanky, but it's interesting as a song because you have these solos, but then the the verses which don't have much to do with that, uh-huh. and then it goes back into the solos. It's just kind of like a weird structure, right? And it has a it it's like a little bit of a slower paced rocker than a lot of the ones that they do. So it kind of has this I don't know. And I think the song part of the song is great, but it's like more so than even. 
a lot of their rockers, the song and the solos feel bifurcated. Yeah, it's true. It's an oddly structured song. I, maybe they're just like, we got to give Mike McCready something to do here. Oh, <laughs> poor Mike. Poor baby. He apparently like had major problems with alcoholism at the time and was like not a fan of the fact that the band was always like fighting and had tension. So I guess that's how he dealt with it. But yeah, maybe they're like, we, we got to bring Mike on board here. Well, I'm glad, you know, it could have been worse then. <laughs> but yeah, there's an outro where he says, if I had known then what I know now, which, you know, later... And I read, uh, there was like a blog that I read about Pearl Jam in like the 2000s, which talked about, you know, this song says, if I had known then what I know now, and then I'm Open later says, if I had known now what I knew then, you know? So it's kind of like, oh, he's inverting, but just an interesting thematic theme. Also, <laughs> when he, he's talking about the devil paying him a little visit as a kid... <laughs> This is so stupid, but this is like what you hear as a kid when you're fucking nine years old is I was really into reading Animorphs. Oh, yeah. Animorphs fucking ruled. And the like evil Nazi aliens were called one of the leader was he's named Visser three. Uh huh. Yep. Leader of the Yerks. Yeah. I thought he said a little Visser and he was like, (laughs) he was like referencing that. I would. Oh, my God. If Eddie Vedder was a huge Animorphs fan, that would make me so happy. Oh my god. Animorphs, good book. Good books. Good book series. Good good dozens of books. They, we need to get kids back into that and out of Harry Potter. Uh absolutely. But yes, the next song is Lucan. I love Lucan too. I love the I, I'm with Vetter. I like the punk songs. Yeah. Lucan is named after Matt Lucan from the Melvins and Mudhoney. Oh, that makes sense. This is about Eddie Vedder had a really bad problem with a stalker. Oh, that's yeah, that's right. And he had to like build a wall around his house and then the stalker like crashed into it at 50 miles per hour. And he's like, gee, if I hadn't have built that wall, I would be dead. Oof. And uh, she, I mean, the, the song just straight up talks about it. You can't really hear what he's saying, like, because he sings it so fast. Yeah. But this woman claimed that he was Jesus and he raped her and gave her a son and she was also trying to kill him (laughs) yeah stalkers in the 90s man i mean so you know the elon musk thing where he's like he got rid of the elon jet because he's like oh i have stalkers this is gonna get me killed and it turned out it was just a fucking grimes's stalker is that what it was yeah, it was Grimes the stalker because like Grimes has had pretty serious stalker problems from what I have heard. I heard a thing where like somebody like took just like photos that she took in her house and like triangulated based on all this information, like based like where she lived based on like random photos, uh. just like with what's outside and like figured out and you know was just like. So I I think she's had a consistent problem with stalkers. And so it's, you know, any musician at that level, unfortunately, probably has to deal with that. But yeah, Eddie Vedder eventually had to move out of Seattle because it was just such a a problem. And he also, you know, had this thing. He's like, I like the line where he says, stopped at the supermarket where people stare at me like I'm a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, a little Vedder, a little puppy Vedder. Yeah. But yeah, he's he said I'm going to Lugan's, which is Matt Lugan's house, probably as like a hideout or whatever. Right. Uh, so that's what that is. As a song, like you know, it's in and out real fast. Yeah, it's it, it's an actual punk song, like as you would. I yeah, there's not much. Good song though. Yeah, it's good. It's a good punk song. Yeah. 
Yes, uh, next we have probably the most well-known track from this album, Present Tense. Yeah, the song was written by Mike McCready. Why is this the most well-known song from this album? Okay, so, I mean, I think it was already kind of popular just based on, like, maybe just the message of this song or... It wasn't a single, though, was it? No, it wasn't a single, but in 2020, it was in the documentary The Last Dance about Michael Jordan... And it's very, very heavily featured, like at the end. I like see. they play a lot of the song. Because The Last Dance is supposed to be about, you know, like the last Chicago Bulls team and sort of like the difficulties of getting everything together and like functioning and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. But it's like really undercut because Michael Jordan is a huge fucking asshole. <laughs> He's he's a gigantic fucking guy. He's like he's the same personality as like Donald Trump basically. Oof. I don't know. I mean, watch the documentary. You could tell me if you feel the same way, but that's how I feel. I mean, I I, I haven't heard anything else any other like kind stories about Michael Jordan. I mean, he's a great basketball player obviously, but obviously. But watching this documentary, because there are some interesting storylines in it. I watched it during the pandemic in 2020 because it was one of those like pandemic things that a lot of people watched. I mean, obviously the pandemic's still going on, but you know, like lockdown things. Right. And there's a whole side part about Dennis Rodman. And I was like, they should make this whole fucking documentary about Dennis Rodman. That I would watch. He's like literally the most interesting athlete, the most interesting athlete I've ever seen. He has such a bizarre story. And Dennis Rodman was friends with Pearl Jam. And his nose is the nose that is on the cover pierced. Oh, wow. Full circle. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. He also is. What a cool guy. His eyeball is somewhere on there as well. Uh, not the one on the front that's all bloodshot, but it's like another one on the Polaroids. But yeah, that nose on the cover is, I guess there were different versions, but like the most. No, I know which one. Yeah. Yeah. That's his pierced nose. No shit. Yeah. I still, I'm just like, they need to make like a 10 part documentary about fucking Dennis Rodman. Yeah. Cause that guy has such a crazy and interesting life. I'm not even into basketball. And like Dennis Rodman was like, he's an outsized personality who's really pushing a lot of boundaries. Yeah. I'm interested. And friends with Pearl Jam. And friends with Pearl Jam. Basically the coolest guy around. But yes, the other interesting thing about the song is the main riff is just A, D. And the reason I know this is because when I started learning to play cello, those are the top two strings. It's just <laughs> bum, bum. Okay. So I just hit those notes when we tuning and I'm be like, that's the riff from present tense. <laughs> if it sounds like present tense, you're good. <laughs> But yeah, this is kind of an interesting song because it starts off very soft. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, it's it's about, you know, growing and, and all that kind of stuff. It feels like sort of a classic Pearl Jam template, right? Of starting off soft and like slow burning its way to like this big climax. Yeah. The chorus is you can spend your time alone redigesting past regrets or you can come to terms and realize you're the only one who can't forgive yourself. It makes much more sense to live in the present tense. You know, honestly, maybe the reason why the song is popular, it's, 
you know, it makes me think of that Van Halen song um, right now. You know how like like when I was on the swim team, they'd like someone would like do a video of like our year 1999 for the the YMCA swim team, and they like cut footage and they play like the Van Halen right now because it like begins like a little bit more you know unsure or whatever, and then it builds and builds and then you know into a big chorus, and this is sort of what the song does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah. So there, there's the main verse, and then the you can spend your time alone, and then it kind of develops into a, a like a long-winded jam that's like a lot more hyped up, and it ends with I love the sort of end section where there's like a I assume it's probably Stone Gossard playing the riff like the high jangly, you know, like that that part is so good, like on the fade out. The album as a whole is a very jangly album, which might be one of the reasons why I love it. Mm -hmm. Because that's like an ideal guitar tone for me. But there is this sort of sunny disposition to the guitars in this album. Yeah, that's true. It does feel like as a kid, I, I was always like, it's a little more ambiguous, like what these songs are and what they're trying to like tell. or Like a lot of these songs feel a little bit, you know, as much as Pearl Jam like a lot of the themes of the songs are pretty direct or whatever they're a little bit more ambiguous like musically musically yeah for sure and that's something that like left me feeling kind of weird and confused as a kid i i kind of liked it but i also didn't know what to make of it but well speaking of a song that is not very ambiguous at all uh <laughs> <laughs> uh we got mankind mankind okay so this is the gossard lead track it sounds like green day to me <laughs> Yeah. And it has the vibe of like whenever Spiral Stairs would get a song on a pavement album. Like the difference in vocal quality and songwriting quality is so stark that. You know what it makes me think of more than anything else? What? The Guided by Voices song that Jim Greer wrote, oh, yeah. Trend Spotter Acrobat. Because that song is also a shitpost on like trendiness or whatever. Right. Like this song is. Yeah. And it also has that like different vocal tone completely. It just feels so out of. On an album that is shockingly consistent, giving all the things it tries, Mankind feels like really off, <laughs> really off track for me. It's not bad. I don't think it's bad. Yeah, I kind of like it in sort of like a white album way where it's like, okay, we'll give this guy a song. Why not? You know? I just kind of wish he let Eddie sing it because I think the riff is interesting. Yeah. Just in a fun imitation. 
the lyrics are are bad. The lyrics are terrible. They're, they're bad. <laughs> I didn't know what Listerine or Ovaltine was as a kid too, so I was like so confused. Really? Like, yeah. We still had Ovaltine in the nineties, I think. Uh, I definitely didn't see o- the the first time I saw Ovaltine was the fucking Christmas Story movie. Oh, um, yeah, I think we had Ovaltine when I was a kid, or I know we had Nesquik. <laughs> Yeah, we. De- I definitely saw Nesquik, but not Ovaltine. The the gentleman's Ovaltine. But yeah, I I don't know. I think I always I kind of liked it as a kid, just because I realized like this song is like kind of a fun shit post or whatever. It's a catchy riff. It's not taking itself that seriously. No, like honestly, to me, the worst thing about it is that it feels really out of place. Yeah, um, especially like at where it is on the album. You know, like present tense r- really sets up. I'm open. <laughs> I think they put it there because it's between those two songs and they're trying to like mix it up. But yeah, who knows? The next song is I'm Open. Wow, this song freaked me out as a kid. Really? Uh, I was like scared of the lyrics because of the line, a man lies in a bed in a room with no door. I was like so scared by that image. Yeah, classic spoken word uh, verse. Very the gift. Yeah, as an adult, like I'm, it's obviously like abstract imagery, poetry, or whatever. But as a kid, I was like terrified. It's like a sci-fi premise. I was like nine years old, so right. You have plenty of imagination to fuck around with it. But yeah, a man lies in his bed in a room with no door. He waits, hoping for a presence, something, anything to enter. After spending half his life searching, he still felt as blank as the ceiling at which he stared. He's alive, but feels absolutely nothing. So is he? When he was six, he believed that the moon overhead followed him. By nine, he had deciphered the illusion, trading magic for fact. No tradebacks. So this is what it's like to be an adult. If he only knew now what he knew then. I love it. I think it would work great right after present tense because it's it's got this like dreamy psychedelia thing going on. That's, I guess it's slow, but it's very tonally different. Yeah, I like the kind of arrangement. It's and the way that Eddie Vedder speaks it. You know, if we were describing this album, which I wouldn't, as like grunge's kid A moment, I could see how this song and sometimes <laughs> sure. are like that for sure. Although I th- I think I like sometimes better. Yeah, but I like I'm open. I mean, the thing is like. I think if it the album ended with I'm open, it'd be a nice bookend. Yeah, because it is like kind of an ominous image, but then it ends a little optimistic. Like, yeah, there's like a degree of a possibility of hope at the end there. There. Yeah, there's um, a certain like sunrise quality towards the end. Yes. That I enjoy a great deal. And it's it's also because like I, I like Around the Bend okay, but it feels... I don't know. What do you think of Around the Bend? <laughs> I did not like the song at all as a kid. I'm not even sure why I like put it on my tape because I didn't put Off He Goes on my tape. But like, yeah, it was the first song. I remember playing it for my mom because she like worked at the library and she's like, oh, I like this song. <laughs> yeah, it's gentle for the kids. <laughs> I just always thought it sounded like fucking M.O.R. like elevator music. Yeah, it's, it has a Jackson Brown vibe. <laughs> yeah, which it does. But it's weird because like, listening to this song again and like looking at the lyrics it seems like 
there's a little bit of an every breath you take thing going on with it where he says you're an angel when you're when you sleep how i want your soul to keep on and on and on around the bend so there was an interview with eddie vetter where he said like this could either be kind of a a reference to you know jack irons was like had a kid and like a family and he also had like some health issues which is why he ended up quitting the band but it could just be like a very sweet kind of lullaby in the realm of like, you know, the Beatles song, Good Night or something like that. Or it could be, you know, meant as this like kind of stalker creepy thing. And like, I didn't think much about that. But then like, like at the very end, you know, when he says that last line, how I want your soul to keep on and on around the bend, there's like kind of a note at the end, which is like, made me think like, oh, they do actually kind of want you to respond that way to it and it's kind of weird it's just a weird song to put at the end and it makes you like wonder if there's like something more going on with it or not like it's very ambiguous i guess yeah it's funny i feel like if it came earlier in the album i wouldn't think about it much yeah like having it placed at the end as it is 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 a bit odd It, it almost feels like a piss take for sure to me like i think a lot of that is like vetter's vocal delivery feels like like a parody of like a lullaby. Mm-hmm. There's something about like how like it's like muted and gentle in an archway. And I don't know if that's just because of the context or not, but that was always the way I took it. Yeah, but it's like so straight, that kind of music, you know. I know, but it's from Eddie Vedder. <laughs> like it's just, yeah, it's a weird thing. He has like a very sentimental side too. And it's like, I, I just, yeah, I don't know exactly how I'm supposed to take this song, I guess. And, like, listening to it more recently and realizing that there maybe is a more ambiguous interpretation made it a little more interesting, but I still, like, you know, I find it interesting in an abstract way and not necessarily that I, like, really enjoy the arrangement or whatever. It's more of, like, a hauntology sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fun to think about. I don't know. I always wanted the and, like, usually when I listen to the album, I end it after I'm open. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't think Around the Bend is bad. It, I just, it feels like a worse ending than I'm open. Well, and this is why Around the Bend is kind of why I'm reticent to like call it my favorite Pearl Jam album. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I I guess It's not that bad. <laughs> I don't know. It's not Well, part of it is like again, it is so hard for me to look at at things from a more objective level like I would sure. as an adult, like I would approach you know, an album that I'm only hearing for the first time that I don't have all this baggage with because there's so many things I just didn't notice when I was a kid or I like references to things or just the, the overall kind of structure, the big picture aspects that I just didn't really notice or understand that now I notice for the first time. And I, I'm always kind of like looking for that to happen a little bit with like music that I grew up with. Part of me like wants to have an experience of like re-experiencing it so I can 
feel something different. And so I can feel a little bit more like maybe part of it is I, I want to feel like validated or feel like objectively, like all these things that, that were like so attached to like my childhood at a, a really not good time mm-hmm. that it like, it becomes so hard to see it from any kind of objective lens. And so I'm like really struggling to do that. And actually the way that I was able to do that is like by listening to a little bit to Riot Act because it's an album that I don't know very well. <laughs> yeah. And then listening back to this and being like, okay, I'm I'm trying to imagine like how I would feel like as an adult now hearing it for the first time, which is kind of impossible, but I kind of have to do it because I've heard these songs way too much. <laughs> yeah, it's, but it, it is, no, I get it. It's It's hard because like, it's like part of your DNA at a certain point. Yeah. It's like observing and critiquing the sound of your own voice. Like, I can put it in context of Pearl Jam, but I can't put it in the context of anything else (laughs) musically. Sure. Sure, I could see that. Which goes into ranking this album. I have no idea where to put this album, so I want you to go first. Oh, man. Uh, what? I I gotta look at my list. You always bring this up on me when I don't have my list in front of me. Okay. Okay. No, no, I got it. I got it. I got us. Okay. Um, I would... I'd put it uh, at number eight, just above Black Alicious, I think. Okay, okay, interesting. I really, really like, well, gosh, that's where I'll put it right now. Okay. I really, really like No Code. I think I like Riot Act better. Okay. Is where I'm at. I need to listen to Riot Act more because it's uh, one of those things that I just kind of ignored because I was had fallen out with Pearl Jam. And I was listening too much to like music forum opinions about how you know, they weren't worthwhile or yeah, whatever. Fuck the forums. <laughs> yeah, I, I might put it at, I was going to potentially put it uh, above that Black Alicious and below Wilco and the Shins. So that's my tentative place. I might change that. But so that would be like number nine-ish to me. Yeah. So yeah, but well, I don't know. I it's hard It's hard to rank something that is so like tied into your, you know, some of these albums that like Source Tags or Filthy Tongues, which I had no history with, trying to rank that in comparison to an album like this that is like fucking, you know, in my DNA. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, that's so hard. But yeah, I guess the, the other thing we can say before we close the book on Pearl Jam and, and No Code is that in the 2000s, they kind of fell off a little bit in terms of popularity. I mean, around the time that Binaural came out, which is the last album that I got from them. Yes. And which sounds like ass. I hate the production on that album. I, I should go back to that. I don't remember anything. I like Binaural just fine. I don't remember anything about the production. I should check that out. It's interesting because they went from two glossy, like dated late 80s, early 90s arena rock to the ultra, ultra dry sound. Right, the PC aughts sound, yeah. The early aughts ultra dry. And like Riot Act sounds a bit better. And it actually makes their albums, some of their albums sound a lot better than like, you know, some of those not as good U2 albums. <sighs> yeah, God. U2 in the U two in the 21st century is, is so bad. Yeah. Even like pop like has some good tracks on it, but then it's like other stuff. It's like, I don't know what you're doing here. I think in total from like all of their albums, I would say there's like five really good U2 songs in the 21st century. (laughs) And they've released like six albums. Yeah. But they eventually, 
they had a point where like there was a they had a a, a Travis Scott Astro World type tragedy yeah. at one of their concerts, Roskilde Festival in Denmark, mm-hmm. uh, during their binaural tour, which is also the tour that they sold every single one of their shows, well, except for that one, albums from every single one of their shows on that tour. All of which are on Spotify. (laughs) They put every single, like, you have to understand, you know, back in the day, if you were ever looking for a used record, a good, like, 80% of the used record bin in the P section would be these live bootlegs. (laughs) Like, you would see a bunch of these, like, white, you know, paper sleeves and then two copies of Binaural, because those are all the albums that were always sold back. Um, <laughs> it was kind of a pain in the ass, and I didn't understand it. <laughs> yeah, I think they got a lot of shit for that. Although, you know, in this day and age, they just put it up on, like, streaming or whatever, and it wouldn't be a big deal. But at the time... Yeah, if they just put it on a file-sharing site, that that's one thing. But it's like, what a waste of plastic and paper. <laughs> I think what it is is they wanted, like, it to be officially packaged and sanctioned instead of people trading around bootlegs because so many people were trading around Pearl Jam bootlegs because they were big live acts. So I don't know. That's what I'm thinking. But after that tragedy happened, which by the way, like, you know, with the like thing with the who where in Cincinnati, you know, with festival seating or Astroworld, like those are both examples where like the event was badly organized but like that wasn't the case with this festival and so they still don't really know why crowd like crush happened like it did at that festival because it was like like they tended to like want to try and pick safe venues and stuff so mm-hmm. it's kind of weird to to think about they almost broke up after that but then they ended up you know going and and they released some albums in the 2000s of which the most interesting probably is Riot Act in 2002 yeah, although Avocado is not bad yeah, I think we could have space for talking about one of those two albums because they're 2000s albums and that's our podcast, you know. That's, that's true. And they're, it's interesting to, to see, mostly we've been talking about bands that like hit their highlights in the aughts, but it's interesting to think about the bands, like the 90s and 80s leftovers, what they did in the aughts and how that was received by, you know, Pitchfork, the indie music publications at the time that had canonized their older work and was now, you know, judging their newer work often extremely harshly. Yeah, I think Riot Act got a really bad score. Riot Act got a really bad score. Most of Sonic Youth's albums got a, a bad score, you know, stuff like it's an interesting it's an interesting uh setup. Yeah. But around the time of the avocado, they had kind of a big put I, I remember seeing commercials for their album. I, I remember I do remember those commercials, yes. And I remember some people being like, Oh, this album's pretty good, so I listened to it and it's pretty, it's good. pretty good. It's not like ama- like a lot of the songs don't stick with you. No. But it's still pretty good. So, and ever since then, they've just been a really consistent live act. And around the time of Avocado is when they were really being sold as like this Grateful Dead style live act where it's like fucking Ed O'Brien from from Radiohead is like, oh, I saw Pearl Jam live and I was blown away, you know? And all these people are like, well, you might not like their albums. They might be doofuses, but they put on a damn good live show. And that's kind of been the framing of like... First of all, they were framed as kind of like this mid-boring band, which like, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess if you hear Yield or or maybe Avocado, I can see that. But like, I don't think it's true. Like with a lot of their stuff, I think they're pretty dynamic and interesting bands. Yes. Although that didn't always translate to like the production of their albums or, you know, they didn't always get as creative as you'd want outside of maybe like 
moments on no code and stuff yeah but they're the only grunge band that is still active and still all the members are alive and they still do tours and you know i mean they won they <laughs> they, they survived they won and, they're still alive and unlike you know say the grateful dead or fish or any of the other bands who's like their live shows are the main thing pearl jam's albums are also good yeah they're like a song oriented <laughs> band they're not like a jam band you don't have to see them live to get it <laughs> Yeah, I've never seen them live. I I should at yeah, some point, but I never have. But yeah. Yeah. But yeah. No code. I will say, like, we said this before earlier, but like, if all you know of Pearl Jam is the hits or like the first three like canonized albums, like give No Code a shot. It's it's so, so much better than it's, it's credit for. Yeah. And it's weirder than something like Pinkerton, which, you know, Weezer still has so much cred for some reason from for those first two albums from pinkerton which the weirdest thing about pinkerton is that it's fucking stalkery and creepy yeah definitely i mean the the first two weezer albums have a lot of good pop songs but like there's nothing like pearl jam is like musically a lot more interesting yes uh and developed which is what we care about on this goddamn podcast <laughs> god damn it yeah anti-nostalgia fuck pinkerton <laughs> Pinkerton's fine. It's all right. Uh, did we decide what we're doing next? Uh, uh, no, not yet. Uh, so we haven't decided. One suggestion that I had was um, Deep Cuts by The Knife. Oh, that'd be fun. Which came out in 2003 because we're trying to stick with the 20-year thing. We'll see. That might be one of them. I don't know if I've ever listened to Deep Cuts all the way through. Oh, it's an interesting album to talk about, I think. Okay. I'm also seeing Fever Ray live in a month, a few months. Um. So that should be interesting. Uh, yeah. God, I haven't thought about Fever Ray in a thousand years. Okay. They're playing a show with, uh, actually like co-headlining one show with 100 Gex, which is so funny to me. That's amazing. Speaking of 100, like I'm actually seeing an 100 Gex show and like looking at the video to Money Machine and like watching early videos for Pearl Jam or Nirvana, it's like, okay, I can see what you're doing here. Like it's the same like, kind of aesthetic feeling but the i mean like sonically completely different but like sensibility wise there's like what what we're saying is 100 gex is the new grunge yeah well it kind of it kind of is in some ways or like you know they're playing a show with machine girl and like some of that is like inflected more with like nine inch nails or like new metal ish stuff and you know obviously has a lot of other stuff going on but there's there's an element to that where it feels like there's like a 30 year cycle thing where some of this kind of like online net music is kind of coming back and developing into this form which is kind of like a weird mirror image of grunge i don't know how much you could make that point but when i see the aesthetic and like what (laughs) i see kids all the time wearing fucking nirvana shirts now i feel like i see them more now than i used to so i don't know there's something there just get ready is all i'm saying (laughs) yeah we'll we'll... get ready oh well so okay so maybe we'll do deep cuts next time we'll find out yeah maybe deep cuts uh and we are going to do lonesome crowded west eventually Eventually. but yes with that i am your co-host liz ryerson I'm your other co-host, Max Kahn. And are you woman enough to be our man? <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, thank you for sticking with us. Uh, long live Kitchfork. Long live Kitchfork. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.